Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. UC San Diego historian Carl Gerth is not your average type of historian. It's not so much that he's a specialist in Chinese history, having grown up in Illinois, although that's certainly a bit unusual. It's that his interest in China and its place in the world seems just as much oriented towards the present, and even the future, as to the past. But at a time when so many people are holding forth on the rise of China without any genuine understanding of either its rich culture or its very complex and diverse current reality, it's refreshing to encounter someone who actually knows the relevant details. When did you start getting interested in the whole idea of studying China, examining it, and putting it perhaps within a broader historical context. How did that all begin for you? I went to a liberal arts college, Grinnell College in Iowa, and the ethos uh, there was to study things you didn't know about. So I thought I would take that to a logical extreme and study (laughs) something that seemed as opposite from what I thought I already knew about as possible. At first, that was the Soviet Union. Hmm. I uh, I was uh, going into college when Ronald Reagan was president, and uh, he had called the Soviet Union the evil empire and being a rebellious teenager. I decided (laughs) if that guy, that old guy, uh, said that that was evil, then maybe it uh, deserved a closer inspection. So the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I spent the entire summer reading everything I could get my hands on, on the Soviet Union and Russian literature. I had planned to take this uh, uh, literature history course with a follow-up study tour of the Soviet Union, which was then hard to go go to or get to. Uh, So I read everything for that course because it was supposed to be the hardest course in the school. And by the end of all that reading, I felt like this doesn't seem that different. If I'm supposed to be finding the polar opposite of something that I think I already know about, I want to find something much more different. Uh, I, I grew up in Evanston, right north of Chicago, and there was a small bookstore, Peking bookstore in, in our uh, town. Um, I'm told it was like a front for the Chinese uh, Communist Party or something, but <laughs> that's not what I saw in there. I went in there and, and it opened up a new world to me because every section of the bookstore, and they had books about every aspect of China, there was something I had never heard of before. I didn't know anything about Kung Fu. I didn't know anything about Chinese food or Chinese cooking or, or anything else. Um, so I looked through those books maybe for a couple of hours and I bought two books, um, sorry, a, um, a two-volume set of Chinese philosophy. Hmm. I took that home and I started flipping through and reading that stuff, you know, the I Ching, the Book of Changes, and, right. and it was so different from anything that I ever uh, had seen before that I was hooked. So partially it was attraction to that, and partially I remember thinking uh, Star Wars had come out around that time, and in, what was it, the second or third movie where the Death Star is partially obliterated? That that Death right. Star partial obliteration with that giant right, cavity right. Uh, represented uh, my world. Like I didn't know about half the world that was just sort of not there like or the disappeared. Dark side of the moon type of thing. Exactly. Uh, so I wanted to fill that in. I, I wanted to feel in a smarty pants college kid, soft, you know, typical sophomore in some ways. Wise fool is that what sophomore translates into? I think so. Um, <laughs> I felt like oh, I didn't want to have uh, an important part of the world, or at least in any case, a big part of the world. 
uh, that I knew nothing about. So I started sort of systematically filling that in. And, and when I got, sorry, sorry. No, no, was this reinforced at all? I mean, did you, did you find other like-minded people, your teachers, your parents? Well, was it, were you, you know, completely alone doing, doing all of that? It's a really interesting thing in life that way when you get to uh, an age above, I don't know, 30 or so, where you look back and where you think it's all you, 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 choosing, choosing, all agency coming from inside of you. But if things weren't set up the way they were, um, I wouldn't be here in this position today. And one of those things was my college just started the year after my freshman year. When I returned from that eye-opening uh, summer, my college started teaching Chinese for the first time. So I dropped Russian language, I dropped that study tour, all of that, and I started taking everything related to China. Because of that program, I had to have one year of Chinese to get to go to Nanjing for my junior year for one term. And then and, and in order to go to Beijing, you had to have two years, but one term in in Nanjing counted as a year of American language experience so that I was able right. to go to Beijing. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky uh, that my college uh, set up a Chinese program right as my own interest in China came out of nowhere. So no, I, I don't feel like I was guided by anything. Uh, my father is, uh, is an expert in inter international trade, uh, not an academic, a business consultant. And uh, he'd come and go around the world when we were kids. We didn't go anywhere, but he, uh, he did. So maybe that by osmosis, somehow, too. there was this yeah. international, yeah, the world speaks, was bigger. Yeah, he speaks many, uh, he speaks several European languages, and we, I remember he'd speak to his, um, his mother, my grandmother, in German over the phone. And, you know, so you grow up being vaguely aware that there was something else out there, uh, something else beyond the cornfields of the Midwest. Right. Uh, but I didn't have a chance to go and explore that myself until my junior year of college. And when you started taking Chinese language, was it was it exciting? Was it daunting? Was it what, what were your experiences there? Because one uh -huh. hears all sorts of things. I don't know. I don't speak any any Chinese whatsoever. But uh, uh, there is clearly a sense that it is very different from from many Western languages. Uh, slightly embarrassing. I had first started out trying to take Spanish, but it was too hard, so I dropped it. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, why was it too hard? Because every kid in my class had taken four plus years before, right. whereas I didn't. Right. Whereas in the Chinese class, then maybe today it would be filled with. Um, American-born Chinese or overseas right. Chinese. But then it was or, a level playing right, field. Then it was like a level playing field. I think there was one Chinese-American in the course who had had some background at home, a little bit of background at home, but it was a relatively level playing field. So we progressed much more, uh, much more slowly. When I went to graduate school um, at Harvard um, and started taking Japanese, half the class was filled with Koreans who had a huge advantage. And yeah, I barely made it out of that class alive. It was the only thing other than an A. In graduate school, generally, it's A or you fail. Right. My language classes in, uh, in that weren't that successful, but in college, um, all of us were new to it, so they went relatively slowly. And do you have to, in terms of your your ability to speak uh, and read in Chinese and communicate, is this something that you constantly are working on, constantly extending your vocabulary? Do you have a sense? Uh, the language is changing, you have to put in regular effort, or, or do you not have such a... Well, everybody should be putting in regular um, effort. Um, but one of the things that's very tricky in my field, especially as a non-native speaker, is to not get too caught up on the language as an end in itself. Right. I also have to, I just admitted a graduate student this year that has much better Chinese than I'll ever have. Uh, he's worked on it very hard, and my one concern is he sees that as an end, not a means to an end. So yeah, I mean, my functional Chinese is terrific. I can go give academic talks there, but uh, can I describe how to make you know, my fav favorite Chinese vegetarian food in Chinese with the right verbs and all of that? Uh, it'd probably be pretty uh, cumbersome. 
So I work on it in a whole bunch of different ways. The number one way, way though, every time I sit down and say watch a Chinese soap opera as a way, as, a, as an excuse to uh, work on my Chinese, I'm like, well, why don't I work on my Chinese by reading something relevant to my research? So I right. largely do it that way. Right. Uh, then, of course, when you're in China, then, you know, a lot comes back. Yeah. So you went over for the first time in 1986, um, and you've been going back repeatedly since then. And the fascination seems to have, if anything, deepened. Uh, you, this is obviously you've invested a lot of time and, and you're interested, but um, you, you, you don't seem to have reached the point where, uh, to paraphrase what you said earlier, well, now it's time to move off into something completely different. You, you seem to be deepening your interest, deepening your experiences, Maybe that's not true. Maybe you're going to be a Spanish historian in five years. But from what I'm getting from, uh, from your books and from just talking to you, your interest is, uh, there's an awful lot there that, uh, to, to be exploring. I think me and a lot of my professional friends have a love-hate relationship with China. In my case, the, uh, or, uh, the attraction or interest is only slightly greater than some of the repulsion. I mean, with the environmental issues alone, forget about all the other problems you have with traveling in general or traveling in China, but the environmental consequences of spending a lot of time in China is very hard. However, yes, you're right, it remains fascinating. I think part of that is, is because I'm an historian, and as an historian, uh, you can jump around from periods, you can jump around, you can do almost any topic uh, under the sun lends itself to historical inquiry. Uh, these days, I'm increasingly interested in the rest of the world and using China as a sort of test case for seeing right. how global processes are unfolding in a particular location. So I'm not even bound by China um, in what I, what I choose to, to research. So I think perhaps if I were in a different uh, field or one of the social sciences, and, uh, it, it might feel uh, restrictive at times. But I don't, yeah, you're right. I, I believe that if I feel bored, it's my own lack of imagination because there's so many uh, different topics that I can, I can explore. So let's talk a little bit about the history um, and let's make the fairly warranted assumption that most people who would be experiencing this conversation are not specialists in, in Chinese history, myself most definitely included. Um, and give us a little bit of a background leading up to, well, the reforms that Deng Xiaoping uh, initiated in 1979 and then all the way up to the present day. Uh, so. Give us a condensed version up until then of the last few centuries, more or less, with some significant, um, um, some significant areas of interest in terms of uh, West-East confrontations, if you will. And, and then uh, a little bit more detailed uh, discussion as to what's happened over the last 35 or so years. Um, okay, well, one way to approach that question is to think about, well, what is modern China? When does modern China be, uh, begin? It's also a practical question. If you're training a graduate student, what century are they meant to start reading books about right. China? In? Exactly. It used to be the case, maybe 30 or so years ago, that modern China began in the middle of the 19th century with the, at the end of the Opium War in 1842. Right? In our imagination, China and much of East Asia, and you'd probably say the same about the literature on the Middle East, was stagnant, going about its business, doing the same thing over and over again, and sort of endless uh, dynastic cycles. Along comes a very dynamic, newly industrializing West, kicks China in the head, and history begins again. Something changes right. during that time. So modern history 
uh, would begin then, as I said, at the end of the Opium War in 1842, and then we'd see China's intransigence, resistance to that, resistance from that, from the uh, Chinese uh, uh, rulers, and then eventually it's overthrown uh, in 1911 by Sun Yat-sen. Uh, he doesn't quite uh, get democracy to stick there. That leads eventually to the Communist Revolution in 49. Mao then is in control until he dies in 76. Deng Xiaoping comes to power in 78 and uh, starts re-engaging with the capitalist West. So I'll get back to that last 30 years. But right. uh, in, in, uh, in contrast to that, uh, for about 30 years or so, the uh, modern China begins somewhere in the 17th century. We often say 1600. It's one of these tricks of the historical trade where if you don't have a specific date like 1842, 1842, something had to happen. Otherwise, right. why 1842? 1600 is a nice round number. Sure. Yeah, there were specific things that happened at 1600, uh, but by picking 1600 for the start of modern China, then you're picking at the end of the Ming Dynasty, on the eve of the Qing Dynasty, but you're pointing to other kinds of things. Those kinds of things are a massive increase in the Chinese population, uh, partially as a consequence, or largely as a consequence of the introduction of New World crops. Uh, so you, uh, you look at uh, the uh, expansion of Chinese population, you look at changes in state governance, uh, changes in commercialization, further commercialization of the Chinese economy. The point of all these different things is uh, that you see all of these processes uh, at work so that by the time you roll around to 1842, you see that the China in 1842 is dramatically different from the China circa 1600. Right. So the, what, what the West encounters, what the British encounters, is a China grappling with problems that by this, this point have grown to monumental proportions. If they had come along 100 years earlier, 100 years later, uh, they may not, not have encountered the same sure. easily pushed around um, uh, China. So yeah, that the field has has gone back and forth between looking at the external influences and, and, and making dramatic changes in China. We're still kind of maybe slightly more in that direction than uh, well, moving back towards that direction of looking at the influence of imperialist or at least other powers on China uh, versus looking at the domestic uh, kind of things going on. But even in the case of those domestic things like the growth of the population, is uh, deeply intertwined with international things like the introduction of new world crops or the inflow of, uh, of silver from the new world as well, which further allows China to commercialize its economy. So which were these new world crops? What specifically? Sweet potato, peanut, yeah. that sort of stuff. What, I, 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 sweet potato, and some of the important things about these crops is not suddenly Chinese get to eat fun and exciting new things. It's that these things can grow in different in conditions that other things that you couldn't grow right in. So you, you can get calories from other locations, in other words. That's what allows for that and the Chinese stop killing each other in large numbers in these uh, wars uh, during the Pax Seneca. What did Seneca have to do with this? What am I, uh, what Seneca I'm, is uh, oh, oh, Seneca. Si uh, okay. like, like China. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, right. So back to your, the, the other part of your question. Oh, hold on. About we'll, we'll get there years. to say. Yeah, I want to yeah. back up a little bit and satisfy my curiosity. Yeah. because I, I, Don't gonna, push too hard, though. Gonna, <laughs> I, I'm a 20th century specialist. This is, we'll get there. We'll, we'll focus I'm on the 20th century. dusting off undergraduate lectures in my head as you speak. Well, it's, uh, you're, you seem to be remarkably proficient at doing so without pausing yeah. for breath. But you, uh, I'm nowhere near graduate level, so you, you, can, you can take a sigh of relief. But it's, it's interesting because as, as you were talking about New World crops and so forth, I, a, a question came to me, which is, why are there so many people in China anyway? It's one of these things that 
I mean, I'm not looking for an ironclad answer, but it's something that um, I think very often doesn't seem to get asked. I mean, here's a place people are aware of how many people they have. People are, are doubtless aware of the one-child policy and so forth and, mm -hmm. and, and the ramifications that it has. But for a country that now has one and a half billion people, that's an order of magnitude more than in most places, it seems to me, of, of comparable landmass. And so the obvious question is, well, what, what's that all about? How did that actually happen? Why, why are there so many people who are there? You mentioned uh, the piece which I, I wrongfully attributed to a famous Roman um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and crops, but presumably there's, a, there's some sort of a, a, of a response to explain why, why this was the case. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I used to teach a 500,000 year history of East Asia uh, which, yes, uh, yeah. from Peking man to present, uh, um, uh, about 10 years ago. And um, I would tell the students that if I woke them up in the middle of the night and asked virtually any question about China, they should immediately respond with, right after Professor Gerth, what are you doing in my bedroom in the middle of the night? <laughs> <laughs> with um, something to do with Chinese population. In other words, almost every major change you see in, in this modern period, however you define it, would have some kind of um, component that would be linked to this giant population. Uh, what makes it even more interesting in China's modern period uh, on the eve of the revolution is that the number of Chinese bureaucrats stays relatively stable. So you really? get a small The number, not just the percentage, the, the actual number. number. Yes. Wow. So instead of having, say, the equivalent of a mayor responsible for 50,000, uh, 100,000, they'd be responsible for hundreds of thousands. Um, what sort of consequences does that lead to? Well, one of the kind of interesting questions in modern Chinese history over the past 30 years was, is China a totalitarian state that controls every aspect of people's lives, or is it the opposite of that? And that question down to the present, or even during the Mao period, people like me who are working on the Mao period are looking at, well, on the one hand, they, cr you know, they create this, the policies that are responsible for these devastating famines. On the other hand, how much how much control over individual lives do they actually have? Hmm. In the case of the late imperial period, if you only have one guy responsible for 80,000, 100,000 people, you can be sure he's going to have to rely very heavily on local elites in those communities. He's going to have to turn over power to those people and work with those people, especially as is the case with China, um, if uh, there was a rule of avoidance that uh, forbade uh, an official from governing over uh, from his home territory. Oh, really? So you couldn't build up an independent power base there. Wow, so yeah. that's very clever. So, um, so that eliminates a lot of the pork barreling type, type of things, presumably. Well, well, or maybe not. but if you have to rely on the, the locals in order to get anything done. Oh, so so you know, what are the two move. things that an official responsible for anywhere is you know, collecting money and forwarding it up the food chain uh, and keeping the peace? Uh, so you wouldn't ask too much about how the tax collection sausage is made if the, if the sausage is right, arriving right. on time right. until if they press too hard for that sausage from the wrong element, they might feel hopeless or they might uh, join in a rebellion or something like that. Um, yeah. Um, so the question of the population has, all, right. has all sorts of uh, ramifications and manifests itself in various interesting ways. It's, it's, it's vital, as you say, uh, to, to answer or, or at least begin addressing a wide variety of different questions that have to do with China. But just roughly, what is it that you think is responsible for this? Does anybody know? Does anybody have a theory? Uh, um, 
I, I think you would, uh, I, it's very interesting to think about how you'd go about answering that question. Well, for one thing, you'd say lots of time and maybe uh, not too many wars or, or uh, plagues or whatever that right. uh, kill a large percentage of the population. But I guess I would look like in that period uh, of peace in China at why it wouldn't just go up a teeny bit, teeny bit, teeny bit, but why, it, you know, the periods in which it would shoot up. And usually mm. that would be, well, whatever war had devastated uh, the countryside and killed untold numbers of people uh, stopped. So they established a stable political order that successfully somehow created a more or less unified state. Now, Chinese state is at least as ununified as it is unified during this period. So there's only so far that theory will go. Then secondly, expansion. One of these other things we used to do in that 500,000 year history is to say, what is China? And we'd look at these little specks around the Yellow River and say, this was originally China. And then this little speck grows to be what we see in the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, the Qing dynasty, the last dynasty of China before it's toppled in 1911, um, as the greatest expanse. Uh, uh, it looks radically different. It's doubled in size. Uh, so there's a lot more place and a lot more uh, right. land and a lot more different uh, people living on those uh, lands. But yeah, China's most arable land is not that newly acquired stuff in Qinghai and Xinjiang, uh, but is largely, with the exception of Manchuria, uh, in its e east where the, most of that population density is. So I would say it must be uh, intense cultivation of land. It must be uh, some semblance of peace for uh, long periods of time. Uh, must have some value of, of, of uh, cultural, social value in, in reproducing. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing that you're alluding to uh, is, I think, another, uh, another deep characteristic of, of all societies that tends to get glossed over if one is ignorant, which is there's an assumption of homogeneity, which, which is, is really not the case. If one looks uh, more closely at, at any society, China is a very, very large country with all sorts of different uh, people with different backgrounds, orientations, perspectives, and so forth. So uh, again, one has to be careful when you say, what is China? You have to look even today, presumably, and, and, and have a little bit more sensitive awareness of the, of the disparities as you travel around the country. I remember, I think in political science, they have a line of what's the difference between a language and a dialect, yeah. a border. Um, I've studied Chinese dialects, and I've also studied European languages. I can tell you that the difference between some Chinese dialects, like I studied Minanyu, um, the uh, language spoken on Taiwan, and the southern half of the province, Fujian, opposite of Taiwan, and it's unintelligible. Uh, you can't understand it. It's not just guessing what, you know, if someone speaks to me in Spanish or maybe French and they speak slowly enough, I can guess some here and there and now it's, really, it's, it's much, quite much different. Yeah, the southern, the southern uh, dialects in China are very, very different. Now there are some places in Manchuria and outside of Beijing, there's this kind of, if you imagine China is like a chicken, here's the head up here in Manchuria right. and here's the tail down here in Yunnan on the Burmese uh, and um, Vietnamese border. If you take a line going from Manchuria and kind of cutting through Beijing and going across like that, that's where the most standard uh, Mandarin is spoken. And then all that, all those places in the south from uh, Cantonese, uh, from uh, Kejiahua, which would be uh, Hakanese, Fukanese, uh, the languages that they speak in Shanghai are, are all very different from one another. So that's just within ethnically uh, Han Chinese. Uh, then, you know, it's something 
under 10% of the population, but 50% of the land mass up until recently had been occupied by all of these uh, ethnic minorities uh, uh, who look quite different from Chinese uh, and the people in East Turkestan, formerly East Turkestan, Xinjiang province, um, look like they belong in Turkey or somewhere very different right. from from that. So yeah, it is. It is a. a in fact, it's complicated in Chinese when you say is this, it, because oftentimes people in China, as being ninety plus percent of the population, conflate Chinese with Han Chinese. Right. Um, yeah. It's a growth area, incidentally, in, in um, modern Chinese historical studies. I think I can't, I've lost track of the number of graduate students where the percentage of it's probably 80% who will work on all these border areas of China and how they, China has managed to keep this large, how, how has China Somehow maintained its empire? It's one right. of the great questions of the, of the 20th century when most empires uh, fell apart. How has China managed to hold on to all of this? And I, I guess a related question, which we should come back to at the end, and I may yeah. forget, so please don't hesitate to, uh, to, to bring it up yourself, is whether or not that's changing as Chinese society is changing, whether, whether or not um, you're, because of the advent of not only consumerism, but all sorts of aspects mm. of moderni modernity, difficult where I always stumble over that word, um, uh, whether or not that's manifesting itself uh, in, in, a, in a greater amount of tension between various regional uh, areas of, of China or whether that's leading to, to more unification uh, or whether that's, that's just too simplistic an analysis and one has to look more carefully, but, but that's... When I taught at Oxford, I always, because basically my job at Oxford was preparing students for these exams, right. um, and I, I basically told them, when, if you're presented with an A or B question, the answer is always C, some kind of combination. <laughs> right. uh, so some kind of combination of both. One, yeah, does consumerism and does these sort of shared lifestyles, the ideas that, um, that Uyghurs in Xinjiang could have the same kind of middle class uh, lifestyle if they play ball with the uh, government in Beijing uh, and begin to have more of a shared lifestyle and aspirations with you know other say global youth or global middle class uh, is that an homogenizing fact or is it uh, do the same channels that are bringing them ideas of what this sort of modernity is based on consumerism also bringing them ideas of I don't know ethnic self-determination exactly. or ethnic pride exactly. and I think you see both of those elements in most of these uh, places and you know, what is the Chinese government's response to that is it's pretty tricky, uh, tricky and sensitive business. Uh, uh, partial, uh, part, uh, take take that railroad. Uh, maybe one of the may, may, maybe the most uh, architectural, excuse me, engineering, impressive engineering uh, feat of the late nineteenth, uh, excuse me, late twentieth century. Uh, the railroad uh, going to Tibet um, is built on very unstable land at a great cost. Mm. Uh, you know, is, it, is that China trying to lower the transaction costs so that people who do business out there or people who grow stuff or whatever can have access to Chinese markets? Are, are they doing all of these areas a favor or is this just going to open the floodgates of Chinese Han uh, migration into these areas to right. make it even a more uh, integrated part into uh, a Han-dominated uh, Chinese state. Right. And, and, and I think there's elements of both of those things. The, I'm sure there are, and, and any sophisticated analysis would necessarily involve elements of both. And, mm. But as you alluded to, one of the more intriguing topics, rather than just say, well, a little of this and a little of yeah. that, is to compare and contrast it with other places that yeah. have 
seemingly similar issues, and, and how is it, as you, as you just mentioned now, how is it that the Chinese seem to be able to uh, be less susceptible to various regional tensions and, 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 uh, and possible dissensions, separatist movements, what have you, than, than other comparable places in the world. However, uh, I want to I launch into modern China. And which, which modern China? Uh, <laughs> the 1600? I thought that's what we were talking about. Sorry, or the right last 30 years, which is what right. I've been spending a lot of time thinking so about. So there must be a better yeah. word for it. Hypermodern chart. Contemporary. contemporary. That's the, the course that I'm teaching this term is called uh, China in the Contemporary World. So the Contemporary which, World begins in 1978, apparently. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I, I basically, uh, trick of the trade. I, I needed the title before I knew exactly what I wanted to teach. So I wanted some bland sort of title, a catch-all, so I could then decide what I wanted to do. I originally thought it would go uh, the 20th century into the 21st, but yes, truth be told, it's largely 1978 uh, to present. The Not only, and this is the, kind of the point of the class, China in the modern world, it's not only the ascension of Deng Xiaoping uh, to power, uh, but it's also what was going on in the rest of the world that allowed him to make the choices, much like me making the choice to study China, uh, that, I, uh, that I made. Um, and um, that book is framed partially around uh, this famous uh, Marxist geographer, uh, David Harvey, wrote a book called Brief History of Neoliberalism. I tell my students that um, the best titles of books or term papers are not just a subject, a brief history of neoliberalism, but a thesis, an argument about that. Right. So it fails, that title fails the really great title um, um, criterion, uh, but uh, he makes up for it with photographs on the cover. On the cover, there's a photograph of Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Augusto Pinochet, uh, and Deng Xiaoping. And what, what I take that to mean, and what I take, of course, the contents of the book to elaborate on, is that these two sides required e each other. There would be no Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal revolution, no deregulation, no massive uh, um, exporting of... Uh, foreign direct investment and manufacturing jobs to China um, had it not been for uh, the reforms and the um, move, uh, movement uh, towards creating a new type of capitalism in the late 70s and early 80s of the variety uh, promoted by Thatcher and Reagan and adopted by uh, Chile's uh, Pinochet. Um, uh, uh, had it not been also for Deng Xiaoping um, wanting to um, invite that capital and invite those right. manufacturing jobs, and so they sort of required each other. As a deeply integrated contextual. Yeah. Exactly. Argument. I think. Uh, I think the way I organize that. I mean, this is tough stuff to teach to undergraduates. You know, big global stuff. It's tough stuff for us to think about. It's much easier to stay within the unit of China. So we could have easily made that a course about the rise of Deng Xiaoping and the movement away from uh, this Maoist collectivism uh, towards a, um, Deng Xiaoping as his famous lines, uh, uh, first allow some people to become wealthy and that those other wealthy will pull up um, other wealthy, will, will help create wealth behind them. I guess this is Chinese version of trickle-down trickle down theory, theory. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, but you didn't, you didn't just do that. You put it in a more contextual argument. You're saying you didn't just look at, 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 at that for this. Well, these, we didn't want just, just, just to think, okay, we're talking about China now. We're really talking right. about the world. In fact, I'm going to have them watch Inside Job, sure. uh, too, because I think watching at what's going on with global capitalism in the West is a good 
gives you some good ideas to predict what, what will go on in China. The sort of financialization of our economy, the movement away from industrial towards financial wealth, uh, you can see the same types of pressures being put on China to deregulate its economy to allow uh, a similar type of financialization as well. So I, 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 although we focus on China, we still pull our ideas from uh, more than one location. And the way that I try to bring this together for students is to um, juxtapose the broadest global forces. So we'll read something like that David Harvey book that I mentioned, A Brief History of Neoliberalism. On the one hand, just give them a smattering of ideas about what are these global forces that are are, are making Chinese make the decisions that they're making. Um, and then on the other hand, we read all of these individual um, biographies that were uh, a part of a, a book of interviews uh, of all these individuals who seem like they have nothing to do with large global capitalist forces. Uh, but um, I have them uh, 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 try to debate these issues, which, was more, uh, which made more of an impact on their life. Um, something that came from within their own quest to make money, you know, the kind of individual agency argument that, that uh, they were the ones going through life making choices. I'll have this for lunch, not that. That all makes you feel like you're very empowered um, and you're independent. In, yeah, independent versus what are the forces that allowed you to choose, in, in my case, living in this neighborhood, uh, we have every cuisine under the sun. How is it that I can have a, a, every cuisine under the sun? Uh, when I was a kid, I, I not only didn't have uh, Chinese food because my parents must not have liked it, but there weren't that many Chinese restaurants. What are the forces that made uh, those things change? So with those students, I think rather than talking uh, airy-fairy about all of these global forces, um, I like to think about it through concrete, specific situations. I, uh, I sometimes only half-jokingly say, uh, I would have loved to have been a philosopher, but I'm not that bright. I can't think so abstractly and purely abstractly. Mm. I can think about philosophical issues, or in this case, sociological or economic issues, but I need to think about it through, through individual lives. So I admire people who can do that all in an abstruse, uh, indirect way, but uh, both for me and I imagine um, the students that I'm teaching, it, it's easier to think about these issues if we look at specific cases. But not only that, it seems like you're making a bunch of points at the same time. I mean, it's, it's clearly easier to, to think about uh, what's happening if you have concrete examples. Um, it's also more informative if you compare your experiences with experiences elsewhere, in different settings, different places, and so forth. It gives you a richer and deeper understanding and, and opens up a whole wellspring of questions that you, you can use on subsequent occasions. But then there's the overriding point that you've been making throughout uh, our, our conversation so far, which is these things are actually integrated. They don't happen in isolation. You don't have policies by, by one head of state uh, being created in a vacuum. Those, those policies and the influences uh, on their genesis happen from the fact that we're all living in an integrated world. And there are pressures that people are responding to. There are wishes, there are desires, there are examples of what to do so perceived there are examples of what not to do and, and this is all part of the mess of, of, of studying real human beings living in a very complicated dynamical system. Anyway, um, let's get concrete. Let, let's talk about uh, the reforms from 1978 onwards and let me start off before we uh, give an overview because uh, I, I, I want to have a conversation rather than force you to give an undergraduate lecture. Um, so I, I like <laughs> thinking about these things. It doesn't feel like an undergraduate uh, lecture to me. <laughs> okay. I mean, um, but let me ask you a very specific question. So I'm, I'm looking at this from uh, an ignorant uh, slash objective perspective, and I say, okay, you have 
all sorts of. Uh, you have a, the straitjacket imposed by Mao on on this society, and all sorts of rigorous policies that have been placed in effect. Then Deng Xiaoping comes into power, and there is a, a, a flowering of all sorts of programs and policies, a loosening, however you want to call it. There's a change in, in policy. So the, the specific question is, is this something that, uh, that you, you think had to have happened to some extent, was a natural evolution, was a, was a, uh, a correction from a, uh, from a policy perspective, or was this more attributable to the unique circumstances of this particular individual and the time that, just th that he happened to have come into power? I, I think you could boil it down to how, how many of the problems that Mao anticipated would occur if you re-engage the capitalist West, if you invited them in with all of their technology, their managerial know-how, and as well as their capital, uh, what would the consequences uh, be of that? Um, Mao anticipated a, a lot of these kind of consequences and wasn't prepared to pay the price. Um, he thought that he would uh, create a more uh, wealthy society uh, a more technologically sophisticated society, all of those good things would happen without the cost. So what were the costs that he anticipated that we see in China? Well, one, one of this is, is this massive inequality. So not only the, you know, the rich are getting richer and a small, small amount of people control the vast amount of wealth, but also the inequality between the, um, between the, uh, the coastal areas Right. Uh, um, and uh, the interior. That's part of why, that, why those trains and lowering transaction costs I spoke of is part of China's effort to try to put a bandage on or try to address the fact that they, their policies have greatly benefited the coastal China uh, to some extent at the expense of the interior. Uh, so one, it's inequality of that sort, but it's also inequality between, um, between manual and mental labor, mm. um, and it's also inequality between um, urban and rural. Right, right. Uh, these were all kind of, so a lot of what's happened in China, Mao completely anticipated uh, would occur if they did what Deng Xiaoping subsequently did. Uh, this is why Deng Xiaoping was periodically vilified and purged and people who, who represented that side. Deng Xiaoping seeing this as a necessary evil, Mao saying uh, uh, more and uh, his ilk as an unacceptable price. Uh, so a lot of the kind of consequences that we've seen in Chinese society, this is why it's open to debate. Is that a necessary evil? Mm. Um, yeah, uh, we, I hear this all the time when I talk about pollution to Chinese people. They say, well, they, they cite, perhaps rightly, rightly so, they cite Los Angeles in the 1950s or Taiwan in the 1970s or 80s or any of these just industrializing countries. If that pollution is horrible, then eventually you work your way up the value chain into making things that don't require uh, so much energy and so much pollution, and then that, that stuff goes away. So there is an argument to be made for this type of a developmental path is a necessary evil. Uh, but I think Mao and his ilk were trying to experiment with, with a different way of, of industrializing and becoming wealthy and powerful without creating uh, so many of the horrible uh, consequences that we see today. Right. So very specifically, when you look at some of these reforms that were implemented, you used the example in your most recent book of the car industry, mm -hmm. and you talk about how that was, uh, that, was, that was a deliberate policy decision made on behalf of uh, the rulers of China, knowing full well, or at least reasonably well, what some of these negative aspects would be. Mm -hmm. But there was a, 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 a deliberate embrace of a specific policy that seemed to uh, 
well, that clearly gave rise to what, what we see today. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that and, and okay. talk about it, because I found it very illustrative. This ties in nicely with some of the other things that we've been talking about. Did China jump into cars or were they pushed? Um, and you can go either way on that kind of argument. The, the kind of jump argument is, well, you want to move your way up the value chain. You don't want to just supply rice to the rest of the world or up until 93, 1993 when China loses its oil and energy independence. It's uh, also exporting oil. Um, so it wants to go from that to making more valuable things where they add more value, its workers add more values, and cars is a quintessential product of that sort. So uh, on the one hand, they want to move up that industrial uh, scale towards more sophisticated products. Um, on the other hand, uh, the West wants at that, uh, that market. There's, we'll see in China today and the West uh, and Japan and Korea um, then as having massive ex 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 excess capacity. They have the capacity to make many more cars than they have buyers for those cars. So they use a, a tremendous amount of institutional pressure, most notably the WTO, uh, to force China uh, uh, to um, open its markets uh, for cars. Well, uh, so why would China want to do that? China would want to join the WTO because it needs to have um, access uh, to all of these export markets. If it's uh, an important component, and not right. the entire economy, an important component, important interest groups behind that are reliant on all of the, these exports uh, to uh, these car producing countries, it needs to join WTO. Otherwise, it would face tariffs that would make its products uncompetitive. Uh, and this so was what, 2001 that they joined the World Trade Organization? Uh, is when they um, ascend to what, full membership, although there are other uh, things that are just starting to kick in. Uh, but it was early 1990s when they're negotiating this. So the way I see the car industry is there's a window of time between China saying, okay, we'll go along with this in 2001, that's in early, early 1990s, um, and 2001 when some of the restrictions begin to be lifted and instead of having to transfer massive amounts of technology and, and invest lots of capital uh, with uncertain returns in a joint venture with a Chinese uh, company, uh, there is uh, Western, excuse me, not Western, when I say Western, I also mean uh, Japan and right. uh, Korea who also make uh, cars and who want the same sort of uh, thing out of China. Uh, they. Um, they uh, um, decide that. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought no, momentarily. Um, in order to gain access to those markets, um, China uh, uh, has the small. Uh, oh, sorry. Okay, I'm gonna stop uh, completely. Um, uh, China needs access uh, to those uh, markets. Um, for its exports, and these other countries are saying, fine, you want access to these markets, you're, you're going to have to allow us to make sure. money, not in the things that we used to make money in that uh, we've sent over there, manufacturing, but in higher value added products uh, like financial services, insurance, or like uh, making cars. Uh, so China sees that it has a small window between it agreeing to join the WTO, these provisions kicking in where they can dictate the terms of, of how cars can get into China. And in that time it says, well, if we don't create our own car industry, once those restrictions are lifted, how will we ever have a competitive car industry? Right. Um, so uh, the things that I look at in that chapter, um, as opposed to say the way a political scientist or someone in the car industry would look at it, I look at all the different forces that are, are getting China to want cars as well as forcing China to need cars. Um, I think a, a good example of this is 
when I started going to China in the mid-1980s, if, even if you had a car, the roads were horrible and you couldn't go anywhere. I remember, and I think I described this in this chapter, the first time I thought I was going uh, to a different city, I remember bumping along this road. I mean, it was painfully bumpy road, um, dodging chickens, all the rest, uh, waiting for us to get on the highway. Well, there was no highway that we ever got on. It was an eye-opening experience. So the state demolishing houses and turning them into roads for you to drive on or creating highways or all those other things helps uh, create the infrastructure. I think this is very important because we think of, well, why do Chinese have so many cars? Why have they become the world's largest uh, car manufacturer and market? We think, well, market, well, of course, if the state had denied them the ability, once the state gets out of the way, uh, then people can do what comes natural, and that right. apparently is buying cars. But I think the important thing to remember in that is the, the ways in which the state can create the structures in which you need or at least want a car. And really stimulate the appetite, stimulate consumer appetite. Can stimulate consumer appetite. One, you can lower tariffs. Uh, you can create these uh, arrangements where you allow these joint ventures to be created. So instead of an expensive imported car from Germany, Germans and Volkswagen are making cars in China that drops the price tremendously. Uh, you can continue to make, uh, make them less expensive. You can direct state-owned banks to lend uh, to consumers so that they can buy cars. It's in, even in today, it's a very small, it's like something under 10% are bought with loans, but you, again, you, you take the point. You can, you can kick people out of their state-owned enterprises in the centers of city where most state-owned enterprises were located and disperse them into suburbs and exurbs and so on. Uh, all of these different ways the state will play a, a role in um, not just deregulating the market by getting out of the way, but regulating it or forcing it uh, in, in a way in which the Chinese consumers are pushed into needing cars, partially for these larger objectives of trying to create a com competitive domestic car industry so that it can compete against uh, these uh, juggernauts coming out of other places in East Asia. But there the is West. this place, and you point this out, you do get struck by this metaphor of uh, a genie out of the bottle. Yeah. Uh, there is this sense that uh, all of a sudden now you have this society where millions and millions of people feel this need to purchase cars, feel this need to have cars. Their status depends on what sort of car that they drive. Uh, you, and, and yes, you have demand, but it, is, it, it seems to be virtually inconceivable to think of a way of controlling that demand once, once it's there. It's going to lead to greater and greater and greater demand. The positive side is, from uh, the Chinese perspective, there's a demand not only for exports, there's a, a sorry, not only for imports, but there's a de there'll, there'll be a growing demand for domestic uh, cars. There's a stimulation to be uh, developing and increasing the quality of their domestic automobile industry. Um, which will not only satisfy domestic need, but will satisfy export and so forth. The rest of the world is, of course, very, very happy because there's a larger market for their, their goods. But um, it is not the case that the, the, that the powers that be who, who have made these decisions originally in China can control them anymore. You have this sense that, wow, this is, this is on the ground. You have millions of people who, are, who have bought into the consumer culture whole hog and it's not as if they can rein it in at a moment's notice. There's a, a famous line attributed to Deng Xiaoping about the reform era uh, being all about, imagine rolling up your uh, pant legs and crossing a river by feeling around for the stones. So a lot of this is sort of, they're getting, they're, 
going somewhere, but they don't exactly know until they stick their foot in the water and try it out a little bit. I think that describes this process a little bit if you add one more thing, that this is done not just kind of slowly, but this is done at breakneck speed. They're just kind of running, jumping, trying to find stones as they can, maybe stumbling a few times along the way. But yes, the process has taken on a life of its own, and not only within China, but I think of China as now doing onto other countries, most notably in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, what was done onto it. In other words, using its uh, leverage in order to force those places to accept or create conditions that are favorable for Chinese exports of cars as well. So if the original problem or original issue was we had all this excess capacity for making cars and we needed to find new places for them, they have the same situation of excess capacity and needing to find new markets in order to make their, um, make their, in order to have economies of scale of producing enough cars to be, to, to be competitive. So yeah, it's, it's now a pretty deeply entrenched part um, of Chinese society. In that, in that chapter, I mentioned that a famous Chinese um, historian friend of mine resists all this pressure and feels a tremendous amount of fresh pressure. He has some embarrassment that the, uh, the designated parking spot lies empty, empty right. and his neighbors ask about that. But you know, one postscript to that is he now has a car. And the last time I was in China a year ago, he was, he was no longer feeling uh, squeamish about buying a car and whether it was the ecologically correct thing to do and whether he needed it and what else might he do with the money and so on. No, he was a very p proud owner of a GM car mm. uh, and took me on a, a really fun road trip as a result. So, you know, again, uh, I think uh, academics some, sometimes seem overly curmudgeonly and critical and all of that, but the good, the good side of the car story is kind of obvious. I have a car, I get to go rowing every morning because I can drive myself down there. I couldn't bicycle all sure. the way down. I suppose I could, but I have to leave very early and cut the amount of rowing in half because I'd be tired. Sure. So I recognize, as everyone might, why cars can be wonderful things. But I think the important thing to remember in this story is not to buy into this idea that it's big government getting off their backs and right. then suddenly they're you know buying huge amounts of cars, but it's part of these as you describe it, not only economic processes, but these other social and cultural processes which create a culture in which um, cars become an important part of life, an and important this, designator. And, and this culture was actively created. It wasn't just spontaneously created by the absence, as you say, of yeah, this or that constraint. And it, it's interesting because it, you, you mentioned bikes, but uh, you start off that, that mm. chapter talking about the poor quality of, the, uh, of this particular bike that you had. Mm. And I, it's not just the case that, wow, they all used to, we all were experts in this one mode of transportation. We had this high quality bike and then now we've moved over to cars. No, quite the contrary. In fact, that the, the bikes weren't very good. They kept, they kept falling apart. I never thought of it that way, but yes, you're right. That uh, that probably I, 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 maybe in the next edition I'll go back and say that uh, if they had had better bikes and bicycle lanes with you know I, some places in China, particularly in southern China, um, there are places at stoplights where they'll have uh, what's a canopy so that you'll if you're on a bicycle you'll also be out of the elements and out of the uh, out of the sun and out of the rain. So yeah, you could have made it a more wonderful experience. But no, back then one bikes were hard to come by, and two once you got one, as I think I mentioned. In that chapter, I was told that you needed a good rain in order to rust all the parts together. Uh, so yes, maybe they wouldn't have been so susceptible to feeling like they needed uh, cars as a um, status symbol and as a mode of transportation if they had better alternatives. Yeah. Another thing that I found very illuminating, and I guess not so surprising upon reflection, but I just hadn't reflected upon it, is you, you talk about not only modes of wealth creation in the reform era, but who benefited mm. and how it started. And you point to 
the rather significant amount of, well, I can use words like graft or corruption, but certainly insider benefit, I think we could say, to, uh, to people, especially in the early stages of, of not only wealth creation movement, but their own wealth creation movement. And you have some quote that said that if, uh, if you look at wealthy people uh, in the early days of the reform era, uh, there aren't very many people who, whose initial amount of money that was significant amount of money that was made was beyond suspicion or, or words to that effect. Um, and, and that this had long-standing ripples through the society to the extent that uh, the, my understanding was from, from reading your book that the, the Tiananmen Square movement was in fact largely uh, initiated as a response to profiteering and, and, and concerns about uh, those sorts of uh, allegations of graft and, 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 and corruption. Yeah, I think of Chinese people today, and again, as a generalization, as having a love-hate relationship with the rich. Um, who doesn't love the rich in terms of what I'd like my life to be like? I'd like that kind of car, that type of supermodel girlfriend, those right. type of vacations, whatever it is uh, that requires um, a lot of money. Um, so on the one hand, they're sort of um, envied or admired uh, that way uh, for leading these kind of wonderful uh, lives. But on the other hand, I think most people... I think it's a pretty fair generalization to say most people suspect how they got their their fortune. I think Balzac has a famous line about um, behind every great fortune is a great crime. Right. Um, I think in America we believe you've worked hard and you deserve it. Um, I don't think that's the general sentiment there. Uh, I, I often wonder about that. How much tolerance for inequality is there here if, if you believe that we, you, you got rich because you got up earlier and worked harder? Um, and not because you were born into a wealthy family and went to the right schools and made the right connections or anything like that, but just because dint of hard work. Um, I don't think that same thing applies nearly as much there, A, and B, if you already have a, uh, a legacy of socialism of a period in which it was supposed to be more, more uh, egalitarian society and the political party still uh, mouths some of that uh, ideology, some of those ideas, does that create the possibilities for much greater tension down the line. I, I don't have, and I don't think there's an easy answer for that, but yeah. I think it's easy or it's worth noting that while Americans have this, you know, endless tolerance for inequality or so it would seem, um, I don't think, it's hard for me to imagine the same is true in China. It's hard for the political leaders to imagine it's true. That's why they're trying to address some of these issues, you know, the runaway housing prices by promising to allocate um, all of these resources to making affordable housing. But if the local governments are funding themselves uh, by, through housing speculation at the local, local level, they don't have the resources to make right. enough housing for all the people that, can, that can't afford it. So I think these, this tension is, um, is present and not sure where, where it will end. Maybe they'll evolve towards believing that in this kind of, I'm the, I'm the decider. I'm making these choices, and therefore, if, I've made, if I'm poor, I've made bad choices. But maybe they'll continue to feel like they're locked out. Um, I, I once taught a summer school group of students from China's most elite universities. You'd think these were the people that made it, um, and they would be in fa all in favor of the status quo as their Oxford counterparts were. Mm. Um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, you know they had a lot riding on the status quo right. uh, and wanted it to uh, stick around. But, but that wasn't no, the response. Uh, um, I asked I asked them one question: If you could change one thing, what would it be? 
And I was expecting to hear that, oh, you know, China needs more democracy or uh, more tolerance for artists that occasionally venture into political terrain like Ai Weiwei or something. But no, their, their number one complaint was this sort of transparency issue related to who gets to get ahead. Uh, that they felt that they, and I don't blame them, if I got into one of China's elite universities, I would have felt, especially if I got in it through examination, a fair examination, I would have felt, I wouldn't say entitled to a better life, but at least that should be possible. But once they got there, they felt like they were blocked. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's got to be a festering problem. I think of it this way. I think of, uh, of the rebellions in Chinese history and the ones caused by uh, ones caused by abject poverty uh, versus the ones caused by uh, outsiders who felt like they had a shot at being an insider. Uh, the Taiping Rebellion is a famous example of this in the mid-19th century. Who, a guy who took the exam wanted to become an official but just couldn't, 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 and eventually decided, well, I might as well form my own state. If I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, enjoy, I can't, can't join them, beat them. Um, I, I wonder about these millions of unemployed um, students, uh, so-called ant tribes, living in Chinese uh, major cities who don't have, not only don't have jobs, but don't have prospects of jobs. You layer on top of that, all of the opportunities have been created in the last 10, 15, 20 years for them to get um, higher degrees. So their parents get to leverage themselves, much like they do here, up to their necks in order for their kids to get a degree, uh, get a college education, and presumably that was supposed to gain them access uh, to, to better jobs, like, like uh, running, uh, or managing a, a car dealership or, or creating a, a, an advertising campaign for a Chinese car. Those jobs aren't there in the sufficient numbers. Mm. I think those are the uh, politically, or excuse me, uh, yeah, the combustible elements in Chinese society, at least as dangerous as uh, the dispossessed uh, poor people sprinkled throughout Chinese countryside. So that, that's, that's very interesting and quite counterintuitive, at least for, for someone like myself, because you hear about prosperity increasing, you, you, you have this sense of more opportunities, and, and it's, it's shocking to imagine that maybe this is almost a byproduct of prosperity, because there is a sense of, of possibility, at least theoretically. There is a sense that, well, we should be able to do this and that. There are these structural reforms. We've, as you said, we've worked very, very hard and, and now have uh, attained a, a admission to these elite universities. So the frustration would be you could imagine uh, perhaps even greater at this stage than it would have in, a, in an area where there so many things were prohibited, so many opportunities were just simply non-existent. So somewhat ironically, it's almost as if the conditions for such a rebellion are enhanced now because of these reforms. So a lot of the ways we think about that is rising expectations, right? That right, you've, exactly. Uh, if, if you've banked your party's legitimacy, not on we're the most democratic, open, accessible, whatever, but we're the ones, uh, are you better off than right. you were four, four years, years ago, ago, the way an American <laughs> presidential campaign would, um, a candidate would have it. Um, so if there have been these rising quality of life indicators, going up and up and up and if China has you know famously has you know 10 percent growth of their GDP for the last 20 plus years uh, then they have a lot to hang their hat on if, if economics is the only way you measure that but if that begins to stall or it begins to get worse because the quality of life in an incredibly polluted place is starting to drop off then it becomes you become politically vulnerable or it becomes politically dangerous 
I think one of the ways that the Chinese uh, Communist Party, and maybe I saw this in the UK as well, uh, uh, try to create maybe a red herring uh, is to say, don't judge us by economic growth, judge us by happiness. So one of the fads you'd say in academia, t in the social sciences today you know, is... Happiness index or something? Yeah, happiness in indices, which I, sh I guess I shouldn't call it a fad. It's I a, think it's you a, should call it a fad. I call it a fad. Well, I'd say it's, 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 a, it's a great idea. Mm. Um, that rather than measuring just GDP, 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 well, you uh, are growing your economy by leveling your forests and you know cutting off the tops of your mountains and doing all this other stuff. Uh, but it's okay because the GDP is at least growing. Sure. That you sort of look at these other kinds of issues that collectively come to um, happiness or quality of life. But yeah, it does uh, it does make one suspicious. I mean, on the one hand, that's these are great questions to ask. What what can we as a government do to make you not wealthier but happier potentially? Sometimes it's a relatively simple. Uh, so it can be, I suppose, a simple fix. Bike lanes, or I'd be happy if they put a crosswalk at the end of my street so I can get to my favorite pub without right. having to dodge traffic. Right. Uh, that wouldn't cost more than a bucket of paint. Right. So if they're asking those kind of questions rather than how can we grow the local economy or something, then maybe they end up, uh, maybe, maybe there's some element of it working. So I don't want to be completely cynical, no. but I think it's worth being skeptical. Sure. If it's a real question about values, and I want to get to values yeah. at the end, and I, I even want to, uh, I want to ask questions about what Asian values really are, and does everybody just want to uh, you know, eat KFC and, and, <laughs> and, and so forth. But if it's a real question about values and how we should live our lives and, and, and how we should construct a proper society and uh, incorporating aspects of fairness and, and accessibility to opportunity and so forth, um, then fair enough. Then obviously you can't just measure that by GDP and relative GDP and so forth. You have to go uh, much, uh, much deeper. But if it's just a mask because, um, well, you know, we... We know we've we've hung our hat, as it were, on this idea of economic prosperity, and this is this is the promise that we have to you. We're the guys who are in charge, and and our job is to uh, make sure that you keep growing your economy and don't ask too many questions. You should be happy if the economy is growing. Um, then, if you're all of a sudden tacking away from that because you're worried about some some other issues, or you're worried about the growth of the economy, or you're worried about the lack of opportunity, then I think there's reason to be cynical. Anyway, um, let, let's well, move. Uh, there's a good good way of looking at this in concrete terms. Is, well, everyone's increasingly unhappy about the state of their air. I read an article this morning about Beijing planning to build uh, bubbles in their parks so that you could go in, you know, right. indoor, outdoor, and you know, breathe uh, breathable air drink potable water and so on. So uh, this would be an in instance of something that may or may not have to do with the GDP, but addressing major quality of life issues right. uh, as a way of making sure that those things don't get so far out of hand that people oppose the government because it's, um, it's not delivering fundamental goods like right. the ability to breathe the air. So let's talk more about um, the environment because that's, that's obviously um, an extremely important aspect of all of this. And, uh, certainly vital to the discussion of, of the growth of, of, of China and vital to the discussion for the, for the rest of the planet. I mean, these are, these are not just nationalistic issues. These are, these are global issues. One of the things that, again, was somewhat counterintuitive that surprised me was that uh, my understanding from your book is that the, the, the Chinese regulations on automobiles are actually tougher than the, the American regulations on automobiles in terms of emissions and, and all the rest of this. 
So uh, if I'm remembering that correctly, that's interesting for, for two reasons. It's interesting because it, it demonstrates that the powers that be in China are aware of this. It's not as if they just haven't given any thought to the environment. I mean, the Western view seems to be, the naive Western view is that, yeah, these guys are developing and they're just not worrying about any of this stuff. They're just not paying the slightest bit of attention. They're mm -hmm. saying, we, all we care about is economic mm -hmm. growth and we'll worry about the environment afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems to be blatantly false. They are actually at least a, a, aware of, mm -hmm. uh, of what to do. And so that's, that's, that's one reason why it's interesting. Another reason why it's interesting is notwithstanding that, it's clearly not working. I mean, it's clearly not even scraping the surface of, of this, this horrible problem, which is getting steadily worse at, at an almost apocalyptic rate. So uh, anyway, those are, those are my, my, my uh, sentiments. Uh, lots of interesting um, thoughts on that question. Um, one of the takeaways from the 500,000 year history course, that's my favorite for students, is that um, it's not just hindsight is 2020 and we're smarty pants and they didn't know at the time, but most of the time they know. So the idea that the Chinese officials know exactly what they were getting into, as I tried to show with that car chapter, that they had their own scientific um, academy saying, don't do this. We'll be dependent on uh, or foreign oil before long. It'll create all acid rain, all the kind of problems, again, completely anticipated uh, and have come to pass. It wasn't what didn't come out of the blue. Right. Um, so yeah, so what have they uh, what have they done about it? I mean, uh, one of the areas in which it looks on the on the surface promising, and that's the Chinese investment in electric cars. It seems like they're going to move away from internal combustion engines and toward electric cars, uh, if nothing else, for environmental reasons. But I think when you look a little bit, you scratch the surface, there are at least two other reasons that I think are more important than than the environment. Still, sadly, you think the environment, like the ability to breathe without getting cancer, would be number one. I think so. Uh, but number one is uh, number one, and tied for number one uh, are uh, geopolitical concerns. So they don't want to be. They have a lot of coal. They don't have uh, enough oil anymore. Um, so rather than being reliant or fighting the U.S. to get the same uh, diminishing resource, um, they w want to switch to electric cars, um, which are coal generated. Yeah, coal generated. Yeah, yeah, the power. Uh, you're starting to see where this is going in yeah. terms of the environment. Um, and secondly, remember I kept in passing talked about the obsession with moving up the value chain uh, so that you could be internationally competitive. But that internationally competitive bit, uh, uh, being able to compete against, uh, by having these new technologies, being able to com uh, compete against GM or, or Toyota or whatever with electric, with batteries that uh, won't blow up when you crash into them or will run for a long time is also, a, a, there's a political dimension to that as well. And that political dimension is, remember all those unemployed types I told you about? They need kind of higher, they need to move up the value chain and create right. higher jobs. So if they can create, if they can leapfrog the, the West and Japan and Korea into, into and lead in, in, in uh, green cars, then they can, one, take care of those geopolitical uh, issues, uh, not be so dependent on getting their oil from really nasty places, um, or two, and, and two, they can move up that value chain. And then finally in that mix, there's, there's the hope about the environment, but as you've already anticipated what I would say, uh, where is that magic uh, electricity coming from? Yes, there, you know, China's the number one produ producer of photovoltaic cells. There's all sorts of promise there, but it's, is it too little too late? It's certainly little. Is it too late? I don't know. I think it probably is, uh, it, it, the problems are only getting worse, um, and in terms objectively of, so. In terms of the, the, our best understanding as, as to the, the concerns of people in China, 
where does the environment rate? You mentioned the, these, these students uh, at Oxford who, uh, whose, whose primary concern, whose, whose first concern was, was accessibility, openness in the market, opportunity, as it were. Where, where would you say the environment would rate on, on an educated 25-year-old person's agenda in, in, in Shanghai or whatever? It's a really hard a question to answer because it depends what that person has access to. Uh, I'll give you an uh, um, I met a group of economists uh, from China uh, when I was finishing this book and I was very anxious that they kind of acknowledge the link between their growth model and the quote-unquote externalities or the consequences of that growth model, all of this horrible pollution. Um, and of course they said, yes, we're aware of it, but we're operating essentially in triage mode. And the first problem is keeping that GDP humming, uh, keeping that growth going, because if we don't take care of that, there are going to be bigger problems. And in some ways, I wouldn't say who's not to say they're not right, but it's certainly an understandable position uh, to be in. That's from the point of view of the government and maintaining Chinese control over the country and all that other stuff. But you know, look at that at the individual or local level. You know, someone who's worrying about the air, or are they worrying about where they're going to get their next meal? Um, and I suspect a lot of them, maybe not one, those 25-year-olds who have you know, jobs or whose mom or dad are politically connected or something, they're probably um, leading the environmental charge. Um, and even those people, as I sort of suggest in that chapter in the book, if I'm going to predict what Chinese environmental movement would look like, why not start by looking at the, at the West or at the United States? And I see that environmental stuff is supported right up and, and until the point at which it starts to affect our lifestyle. Yeah. You tell me I can't drive my car to go rowing in the morning or uh, I can only drive it once a week. I mean, I, I cut corners where I can. I take the shuttle bus to school, that sort of thing. But, but um, I, 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 as, as president after president in America, Republican or Democrat has said, American lifestyles are non-negotiable. So we're not really prepared to do it here. Um, even the middle class, as they begin to feel, taste the good life, are not so prepared to make those kind of sacrifices there yet. It's a pretty intractable problem, isn't it? Yeah. This is also, I think, somewhat aligned with uh, the next topic I wanted to discuss, and that is this notion of China versus the world in terms of economic competition, in terms of a sense of pride that the Chinese would have in developing their own brands. Mm -hmm. there, there is this, to my mind, somewhat specious setting of, of one country always doing battle against another mm. country. There's China against the United States, and in the United States there's a sense of China being the great enemy that's sucking the jobs out from, from manufacturing jobs from America over to China. Mm. And, and similarly you have all sorts of expressions of willful pride uh, of the Chinese wanting to have their own brands and saying, yes, we're going to buy status brands from the, the, the West because uh, these are better quality products and, and we're, we're proud to be able to have the purchasing power now to be able to do that. But the eventual goal is, of course, to have Chinese brands. And, and we hope that one day we'll be able to have brands that can rival Gucci and, and Ferrari and all mm. the rest of this kind of stuff. Um, and, and my sense when I, when I see these things and when I hear this rhetoric is, is it always leaves me a little bit cold because it just seems so completely silly at some point. I mean, it is not a zero-sum game. Obviously, economically, it is uh, a, a, a rich and, and powerful China is a wonderful thing for uh, American manufacturers. 
uh, a rich and powerful America is a wonderful thing for Chinese exporters mm -hmm. as, as well as uh, opportunities for joint tourism and all the rest and many, many more things besides. I, I mean, are we too locked into this, this simplistic notion of East versus West and China versus America? Is this, is this hyperbole? Or is there really something to that that somehow should be, should be looked at differently? So I, I agree with you in part. Uh, initially, it sounds like uh, I don't know, pathetic vanity or something. Oh, we want to have brands. We're not really a nation. All those other kind of things. But if you remember some of the things I also said, what they're saying is we want our college graduates to have decent jobs, right. so that they'll grow a better economy and that they won't come after us. Whatever these other reasons are. So you could, if you if you buy into that second part of my argument, or say. Why isn't our government doing? Why aren't our, what Canadian, American, why aren't other governments saying that's our job is to create uh, jobs? Our job is to make uh, create better jobs for everybody. So if that occasionally viewed down to, uh, boiled down to its essence, it might sound silly and ridiculous, like we need Chinese brands for Chinese people. Uh, but um, when you look a little bit, I don't know, more closely, maybe it sounds like that's what the job of government is: is to try to take care of the people that got put them in power or tolerate them being in power, uh, perhaps. But no, I, I see what your point is. And I think um, that, um, you know, that whole comp uh, comparative advantage argument is that China should never move up the value chain because their advantage would be in, you know, they got lots of people uh, who, uh, who can work hard for low wages. Their competitive advantage should be in, you know, low-end manufacturing. But I think they want to push, of course. push their way, way up. And so the government has these rallying cries that are, you know, red meat for a particular crowd. Um, yeah, I can see why, why they go that way. Um, it's, it, it, it doesn't necessarily work, though. Um, cars is a good example. You know, they've been pushing domestic cars for a long time, but the state-owned enterprises are making so much money with their joint ventures with GM, for instance, uh, that the state-owned enterprise that's partnered with GM has been reluctant to put long-term investment into R&D and instead just keeps piling up their short-term gains from making cars with, um, with, with uh, GM. I mean, they're slowly making noises with a lot of pressure on them to do that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot e easier to say than for them to execute uh, this, this move up. But yeah, it's one of the things that I've looked at across the 20th century. My earlier work is also on economic nationalism in China, and I've been struck by, as I, I sort of describe in that chapter, the movement from being economic nationalist, meaning we want not just to export raw materials and import finished products, now it's moved on to we don't just want to do all the hard, heavy lifting, do all the iPad assembly, uh, right. but have Apple owned by somebody else, but we want to have these brands. Because, because the brand is, yeah. is worth so much, as yeah. you pointed out. I mean, yeah. the, brand, exactly. the brand is, uh, the value of the brand is much more than, than the actual work in assembling these things. So you're supplying, you're supplying evidence from my part of the argument that, that uh, that's perhaps what a good government ought to be doing is well, saying we don't want to just have uh, people making slave wages uh, and instead have them designing the next generation of electronic gizmo. I'm, look, I'm not an economist, and I have the right to, to, to also contradict myself, you see, okay. because I can, I can claim that I'm being provocative. But, but, uh, I guess what bothers me is what bothers me is these simplistic you know, sports type of zero-sum game analogies, yeah. right? These two countries are in a boxing ring and, and one of them is trying to knock the other one out, which it just strikes me as inane on, on, on so many different levels. But, but I think your point of, uh, of, of 
using the, the situation in China to force us to question our current policies is very much in keeping with what you said earlier. Looking at China, not just at China itself, which is interesting enough, but as a window, as a mechanism to look at the wider world and also our own policies, to, mm -hmm. to, to rethink mm -hmm. our own policies. Are we doing things the right way? What is the role of, uh, of, of the state in terms of, mm -hmm. of sponsoring or, or, or being behind businesses? Is it, is it, uh, should it have more responsibility? Should it not? Of course, there's a continuum. There's the United States, but you also have governments in Europe. You have Canada, you have Australia, you have other mm -hmm. developed countries where the state plays a greater or lesser role in, in partnership, as it were, with, with the corporate sector. Well, if you want to talk about the EU, we can talk about the EU. Uh, I talk about uh, and Germany here. in particular. So how do you get around the problem of, of it being seemingly a zero-sum game, that we have to beat you in order to succeed and all of that? Well, the obvious answer is you make international agreements or trade agreements uh, that are supposed to be for the benefit of everybody. Right. I'm sure that the Greeks have a different opinion than the Germans about whether or not sure. uh, the EU is fair for everyone in, the, in, in equal measures. So I think the Chinese would probably say the same about the WTO um, as well, that it sounds like it's going to allow everyone's comparative advantage to lift all boats, uh, but the reality is they, they, they feel that they might get pinned down or pinned to a certain part um, of, the, um, of the value chain um, and be locked in there. So yeah, it, it's, I, I, what's, the, what's the solution to, what's the alternative to instead of me versus you? How can we all work harmoniously together if it's not through the, those sort of international trade agreements that are fairly applied ac across the globe? Um, is, is there a sense it, it from, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to be asking these ridiculous things like the, the general consensus in China or what the average Chinese person would yeah. say, which is... Well, I think everyone can assume that, uh, 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 that if you applied the same thing to America or Canada or the EU, uh, that that we'd be generalizing right. and that some of this it, we're trying to get a sense of it without saying that everyone in every place feels the same way. But know? if you could imagine yourself uh, as a fly on the wall listening to the, the views of the leaders of, of contemporary China it, in, and, and you were to look at a model and you were to say um, that the sorts of things that the uh, modern leaders of China are now looking towards would be an economic structure throughout their society, scaled up obviously due to the numbers, like Germany as a goal, or like the United States as a goal, or, or, or like one other country. Which country would it be closest to if, if, if you had to speculate? Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, well, the way I often think of it is what's the, what's the from, because I look at most things from the point of view of Chinese consumers or consumerism, right. I'm like, well, what is the Chinese consumer dream or the middle class dream? Okay. It's the American dream plus 10%. It's not the European dream, which seems like a discounted store dream rather than the, well, what my, my day and age would have said Cadillac of dreams. Now maybe it would be something else. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it is very ambitious and it's as ambitious just the way that you described. We want to be a branding superpower as well. Right. Uh, we, want, we don't want to be just good or something, but you know, we're the biggest country, the largest population, uh, this great heritage and so on. Why shouldn't we um, aim for uh, the, the, but, but the let's talk. Mm -hmm. So this great heritage thing is interesting to me because there, there are two, two sides to it. Mm -hmm. One is, is is pride, right? We're a great mm -hmm. country, we have a great past, we have a great heritage, we have a great whatever. Most people, uh, uh, most citizens of 
of countries on, on the earth, which I guess is pretty well everybody, uh, would, would probably say something similar in different terms, mm. maybe about their own place, their own country. We're mm. a great people, we're unique people, we're interesting people, we're something like that. We may not be large in number, we might be mighty in integrity, who knows, right? Mm. Um, but I want to get to this question of values, because it seems to me if, if the real goal of most people who are in China is to be America plus 10%, and that, that's curious to me because it means that the real goal is basically does boil down to economics. It does boil down to this idea of what it means for us to be a successful country is that we, we have an incredibly powerful economy, is that we dominate the world economically. Maybe there's a military component to that eventually. Maybe there isn't. Who knows? But, but that we're, we're considered the strongest. Uh, our goods are the best. We have these wonderful brands. And that, that doesn't seem, uh, that seems peculiar to me because that seems exactly like an American type of ideal. So my, my question as an outsider is to say, is this something of human nature that everybody basically wants to do this once they develop? Or would the Chinese want to necessarily have something which is obviously successful, economically powerful, but it's, it's really based on a different set of values somehow that is more, uh, more in keeping with their own traditions mm. and orientations. So co very complicated questions like that. I often start not by thinking about China, but something I like to think I know slightly something about, like America. How would that question work out in America? And I think, well, do Americans, if, we, if, if Americans are confronted with one set of realities that are a consequence of their lifestyle, they probably think about their lifestyle differently than if those realities are hidden from them. Yeah. So right now, China is being confronted by the consequences of its growth model. Unbelievable pollution. Um, if, however, that pollution mysteriously disappears to some other country that seems far away, that they don't know much about, Indonesia, somewhere in Africa, somewhere else, uh, and some of that pollution does, as they, as they hope, dissipates, and they, it was just a necessary evil, the way that Los Angeles had those problems or uh, London had those problems uh, much earlier, uh, then maybe they aren't maybe there is no problem. I'm sure there are quite a bit of Americans who don't see any problem with any, any, any aspect of their lifestyle because the consequences, whether it's a war in the Middle East or it's uh, pretty bad labor practices in China or Bangladesh, wherever their clothes are being uh, made, if those things are, are mystified or hidden from them, then maybe it's easy to, to think that there's nothing wrong with me wanting uh, what I have plus 10%. Yeah, but th there's something more. I mean, you, when you talk about these, these undergraduates, I keep coming back to this, this anecdote that you raised, and you said their number one concern was this idea of opportunity, uh, of access. And I can, mm -hmm. I can imagine, I don't know, yeah. I have no knowledge of it, but I can imagine that that's, a, that's an indication of a larger set of values. You know, the China that I want, the China that I believe in, the China that I think is the product of this long, glorious heritage is one of of opportunity for everybody is, mm. is one, and I don't know if that's true or if that's not true, I have no idea, but I can imagine that that's a possible value. Um, or, or maybe it should be respect for our elders or respect for the past or, or, or whatever. It just seems like this, this notion that, that the, um, the, the ultimate state uh, should be a chicken in every pot plus 10, should be uh, being able to have better brands, should be, yeah, yeah, we want to make sure that our, our air isn't, isn't polluted and that we have nice quality of life and so forth. But it's, 
um, it's it's kind of intellectually disappointing for me in a way. Do you, do you understand? <laughs> like I mean, it's either the case that 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 people in China, that everyone's really the same. It doesn't matter what their heritage is, doesn't matter what their history mm -hmm. is, doesn't matter where they come from. But you know what? Everybody really wants to be able to buy stuff, and that's something that that is just. Well, part I, I of the human know. condition. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it's buy stuff so much as it's feel like they are successful or yeah, but feel that's like the same. if that's the, what uh, qualifies as successful, if that's the criteria for right. success, it could be like have the have the greatest number of novelists, or or it could be have the so, most inspiring architecture. So or it in, could in, be, in you know, one of these earlier periods of reform in the 1980s, I remember when I was there as a student, my my um, classmates who were on their way to becoming academics themselves, um, they were complaining about the fact that the guy making dumplings, who just was allowed to set up a dumpling stand in the corner, was making more money than the most famous professor right. in the university. Right. So again, it goes back to that, what's the measure of success? And if you feel like you need you know, self-esteem through, uh, through some measure of success, uh, then it's a pretty easy one, or it's a good starting point for success. I mean, I feel this kind of tension all the time between wanting to not feel like I need accoutrements of having uh, being successful versus uh, liking a nice lifestyle and liking that other people uh, can look around at my possessions and say, he must be good at what he does. Right. Uh, or be very corrupt and he learned something else in China. <laughs> and, but there's also this idea of, of, of inequality. I a lot of apples before yeah. each class. <laughs> I turn those apples into hard cider. I mean, you talk about, you talk about the Chinese looking at, at Europe as America minus 10 as opposed to America plus 10 or America light in terms of, and in terms of innovation, in terms of, of economic growth, that's clearly true right now. But if you look at things by other measures, if you look at things in terms of, of uh, access to healthcare, if you look at things by, uh, uh, by I, some sort of objective measures as to what constitutes a fair society, a, a more caring society, it's by no means perfect, but compared to America, it's, it's just, you know, it's a zillion times better. I mean, it, it's, it, and clearly there are a different set of values that are there. So the, you know, the standard arguments, Americans look at Europe and they say, oh, they're just a bunch of lazy guys, and, you know, state supported, coddled and so forth, have you know, 20 weeks holidays a year, you know, they, they, they don't actually do anything. And the, the Europeans will look at America and say, it's, you know, what is it all about? It's just about buying, 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 getting more, getting, and then dying. It's, it's, it's a vacuous, superficial type of existence. So I'm glad you raised this um, because this gives me a chance to, to say, okay, remember what I said about the Chinese being this way? Of course, there's a, a major current in Chinese politics and intellectual life that is pushing for some kind of alternative. This is frequently go under the name of the new left in China who are trying to not restore Mao and have parades and wear, all the, wear the same clothing or whatever it is you associate with the Mao era, but by saying that they should have a social safety net, that the social safety net that was cast aside uh, needs to be um, uh, put in place again. And indeed, some of the people that I study, the kind of advocates for China becoming a more consu domestic consumer-driven economy rather than an economy dependent on all of us uh, abroad buying their stuff, uh, would be aided by uh, this agenda, would be aided if they didn't have to save up all their money for an unexpected hospital visit right. or to buy a house that's too uh, way beyond their means and sucks up all their capital so much so that their house poor. Uh, so that there are, is some consensus around uh, the possibility of building um, a, a uh, social safety net that would create a, you know, America plus 10%, the 10% being the, you know, the more you know, looking out for the least amongst a us. Moral, a moral yeah. 10% as it were. Yeah. <laughs>
And, and, and this, this new left movement, how, how strong are they? How prevalent are they? Well, the, unfortunately for those people that support that, um, the, guy, the guy who was angling to be the new left politician in chief, Boy Si Lai, was uh, purged. His wife apparently uh, um, uh, took out a hit on a, on a British businessman. I mean, he's completely disgraced, Boy Si Lai. Um, and um, a lot of people who supported the new left thought he was a false prophet anyway. That all the stuff that he was doing, texting people, uh, quotations from Mao's Little Red Book, uh, lots of mouthing about, um, about taking care of, uh, of the poorest in Chinese uh, society. Uh, but it, what, I take him, what I take him to represent is not the ideal politician or not the ideal politician, but an opportunistic politician who's who's obviously um, amplifying some current that's out there, right. that all this wealth ought to be used, uh, all, the, all these gains ought to be used for something other than endless wealth generation and concentration. Um, and your estimation of that undercurrent in terms of some sort of percentage, just to give me, who knows absolutely nothing about this, some sense as to the restlessness on, in this particular direction wow. would be... That's really tough. So I'd give me something you, like uh, half of one-tenth of a percent. Give me, uh, I, I I'll, wanna, I'll put it this way instead. So we would ask the same question about the Russians. How many Russians you know, long for the days of the Soviet Union? What, how would you put a, a number on that? What, what you would find, rather than putting a number on it, is that a surprisingly diverse number of people uh, from diverse backgrounds would, would recognize that something of value was lost. Right. Uh, and I would say the same in China, that the, that the number of people who kind of look around and say, is, is, is this what, what we fought for a revolution for? Um, is this what we trashed our environment for? Is this what we have to send our kids abroad for? Um, that that they, there's something uh, that they think is wrong. Now, which way that could go? Could it, it could go into a kind of nasty, xenophobic direction, as it could in any country, and yeah. as it has in, in various countries. Uh, so that's the really frightening part. Does it go into let's build a better society for everybody, or does it? Do they, you know, governments the world over are fond of using foreign threats as an excuse to rally uh, people around and, and squash uh, dissent? Right. And if, if I'm a betting man, I'm afraid I take the more cynical route of of that of, of that route. Oh, you're a historian actual, after all. Well, yeah, the, <laughs> History is a guy. Historian who reads the papers, I guess you'd say. <laughs> you'd say. Uh, no one ever, you know, no one ever uh, lost their shirt uh, betting on things going the you know way of the downward spiral. Yeah. Must be a product of age, I suppose. Wisdom, age, uh, realism, all that stuff. Whatever. Uh, yeah, but. Um, you know, it's not, as you were sort of mentioning earlier with cars and the kind of putting restrictions on it, it's not to say that their bandages that they're putting on, you know, problems in China won't be applicable in other places and that those bandages or that, that cars, for instance, if they develop the technology, they push them in that direction, they, they rig their market so that uh, electric vehicles don't cost so much more than internal combustion ones, and then there becomes a market there, and then it becomes cheaper to make those kind of things for countries in, say, northern Europe that can generate uh, electricity cleanly. There, there could be some, I mean, I look, like to look for, you know, signs of something hopeful. Um, yeah. While keeping my eyes open, I, I, I told the students they're resistant to this label. Americans uh, don't like being called an intellectual if you're just a college student. But I told them, you know, that they're as college students at the finest 
public university, perhaps in the world, the University of California, uh, that they're intellectuals and that their job isn't to rah-rah the status quo, but to investigate it and think about it critically. Even if they end up endorsing the status quo, they should know where the seams are, where the potential uh, yeah. problems are. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, the mechanisms for implementing political change. So obviously mm -hmm. a hot button issue, democracy, um, the, the lack of democracy in contemporary China and, and how that's used uh, uh, as, a, as a genuine outcry of uh, inappropriate ways of governing mass uh, individuals or as a hobby horse to be able to, um, to be able to somehow hide or disguise one's covert economic agenda or whatever, the whole spectrum of mm -hmm of whether, uh, uh, of the, the, the political conditions in China. And I'll just open with my reflection. So one of the things that's always uh, struck me is this automatic link people make between uh, capitalism and open liberal social democracy. It seems to me these are two very, very different things. And they could be linked, and they, they certainly have been linked historically, um, but this notion that they are necessarily different sides of the same coin is something that uh, I've long thought was just not a very strong argument. The idea that you could have free markets without necessarily having uh, modern uh, democratic uh, institutions of, of choice of who is in fact implementing these things it strikes me as uh, quite possible and not, not at all uh, um, necessarily some sort of oxymoronic situation. China represents, I think, from my perspective, a clear example of this. I don't think people really thought too much about it beforehand, and now they say, oh my goodness, you can actually have all these open markets without, without the standard democratic infrastructure that we have now. First of all, is that, is that a, a reasonable way to look at it? Am I grossly misguided in, in that? And secondly, if, if it is the case, what sort of effect is that happening, uh, is that having rather? What sort of effect is that having uh, amongst people of a more, let's say, uh, dogmatic, standard, neo-economic, uh, liberal persuasion around the world? Well, I went to a talk by a, a prominent historian recently, a, a critic of American foreign policy, who says Americans want to be want their foreign policy to be judged by their intentions, but the rest of the world judge them by the consequences, the results, what it looks like on the ground. I think in the, you know, between the crisis in 2008 and certain things that's undemocratic principles, uh, practices being implemented in the United States, all these efforts to make it harder for people to vote. I mean, there's a lot of this kind of ugliness that a general American public probably is unaware of or indifferent about mm. that would be kind of like maybe there'd be a larger percentage of the enlightened peoples in other countries, including China, who would look at it and be skeptical about, you want to, why would we want that? We'd want a, uh, uh, instead of a government controlled as China does by this kind of unelected elite, you'd have it controlled by a, what, business or corporate um, elite? Who's, who's going to benefit? It's, it's not to say that they don't want what we have or think that there are principles here that are incredibly admirable uh, and, and might be useful, but I think the kind of skepticism, as you, you said, that somehow 
democracy, capitalism will wash away all problems. It's hard, to, hard for me to find people who think that. Uh, it's hard, not hard for me to find people who think that China would have fewer problems if they had more of those things. Like the problems in China, if, oh, well, if you thought 10% was great growth over the last 30 years, 10% per annum, well, if they had properly, if they had continued the process of the state withdrawing from the economic sector and privatized state-owned enterprises, probably would have had much more efficient um, use of capital and maybe even higher rates, maybe even more sustainable growth. So some people will continue to go back to the same explanations, right. democracy and, and uh, capitalism will solve all the problems. I think other people would, would try to find would be slightly more, more critical about this. They would also be critical of the characterization maybe that, that uh, this is the only place, or even Western Europe is the only place that has the best practices or latest principles for how to act democratically. Uh, China does experiment in de uh, democratic things, not in the most visible way, namely by having a multi-party state that you choose between, uh, but at the local level or say statistically, st statistical sampling. The last time we did a census here, um, I believe that there were efforts to try to use statistical sampling so that we could find out the entire population, who lived where, uh, and so on. The problem is if you find out the entire population rather than the easily counted, you include a lot of poor people. Uh, and uh, and you, in, you end up shifting power in ways that certain interest groups uh, might not like. Uh, the reason I mention that is if that principle is politically unfeasible here, using statistical sampling as a way of uh, collecting information about your population, they're using some of those principles uh, mm -hmm. there. They're doing the same kind of things for finding out what's on people's minds in focus groups and that sort of thing. Um, so I think the idea, so I, I would say the first response to it is don't look for signs of democracy only at the top. Uh, look, look in other, other places as well. And then maybe the secondly, don't assume that ours uh, uh, is either A, perfect now or on an endless ascent when in fact uh, we see plenty of examples right. Of people being disenfranchised, even a local uh, ascent, not even endless. It could I, be just. <laughs> I, 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 I used to. Uh, I have a ballot uh, in my office. Uh, my uh, rejected ballot for the last election uh, that was. Re I submitted it absentee from England two months before the election, and I got it back the night before, saying if I called up, canceled my ballot, and showed up in person, I would be re-enfranchised. Uh, because uh, on the back, on the back label, um, I signed my name and dated, and I need two witnesses. They signed and dated, but the fine print said they weren't supposed to date. They were supposed to write their address. Uh, so for that reason, I was disenfranchised. Why I couldn't vote over the internet or some other way? There are those political constituencies blocking the further advance of true democracy. Uh, in my estimation here. So I guess when I look at China, I definitely see the pro problems as those students themselves pointed out, the lack of accountability and transparency, uh, but uh, that the U.S. has the only model uh, or the best, even the best model or itself isn't creating or demonstrating problems with democratic uh, practices is, uh, yeah, it's, I don't think is accurate. If I were to ask you to speculate, uh, and I will, uh, <laughs> On, on, on what will happen, let's say, 10 years out, uh, on all sorts of different levels, the sorts of things that we've been talking about. And, and I'm even, I'm going to say 10 years, but if you want to say, if you want to pick a different number, like 20 or 15, feel free. But let's just say 10 for the time being, until I hear otherwise from you. On, on what China's going to look like economically, the level of internal dissension, 
in China or, or lack thereof. On how well or how not well it's going to be integrated in the global economic community or the global community, let's just say. Um, how would you respond to that? What's your, what's your fearless prognostication or maybe fearful prognostication? Well, I have to add, I have to start with a qualification about sure. my job not being uh, to describe fantasy land or half, you know, the best possible outcome. My job is to people look critically at the stuff around them so that maybe they can move towards a, a better um, outcome. But you're sitting here, I'm going to ask you, I'm so, going to ask you to go into fantasy land. You know, I can point to all these uh, various uh, fault lines in China. Uh, I think that's maybe I borrow some now that I live in California. So like, you know, <laughs> it's only a matter of time before the big one hits uh, L.A. or San Francisco. Is that five years? Is that 10 years? Is that 15? Maybe they get incredibly lucky. Is it 20? There are so many fault lines in China that are well known to everybody, including the Chinese leaders. Any one of those could, could happen. Let's take a couple of obvi uh, obvious ones. Uh, the pollution one. It's probably the most obvious because it's conspicuous. You can see it the second you get off the plane. Um, and those people who have taken plane rides will know the feeling that, that uh, of when they first open those doors and ah, suddenly there's fresh air. Not when you arrive in the Chinese city. They open the door. It's like close them back up again. I'd rather you know breathe that recirculated air for a few more hours. Um, so the environmental kind of degradation in the book. I, it's the first time I, I've seen that anywhere. I've I pieced together a pretty alarming scenario of all the different stuff we know about what's going on in, in China, from the dropping water tables of the North uh, China Plain that is going to make their you know bread belt harder to supply bread, uh, to the uh, desertification of the western part of China, uh, uh, to the disappearance of lakes and further difficulty of getting potable water. I mean, you go through all of those things and how what sort of protest is that going to cause from the uh, not only the poorest uh, among China, but at all levels of society. And there are kind of like odd kind of things that are harder to pinpoint. If we say, okay, China is corrupt, is very corrupt uh, place, and we think about these giant engineering projects like the Three Gorges Dam or the South wa North Water Transfer Project, if a, a large percentage of the Chinese uh, economy, especially that higher value end economy, is upriver from Shanghai, and uh, and those dam that dam is upriver from those areas, and that area is now there's some suspicion that that Sichuan earthquake was uh, that some of that earthquake may have been caused by the weight of the water. I mean, again, this is an area hydraulic uh, that, that is a little bit uh, beyond my pay grade. Uh, but if you look at everything from the kind of things that are very obvious to everybody. Um, to the kind of natural world phenomenon, which if that dam were to break, and if it were to break either because there is an earthquake that were caused or because of shoddy construction that we, as we saw with uh, some of the uh, high-speed rails that they were building, uh, the, the trickle-down effect of, not of that sort of disaster, yeah, is a bit more than a trickle. Yeah. Um, and in between those two, there are lots of these other problems as well, whether it's the, the kind of stalling uh, growth model and their attempt to shift towards a more consumer, a domestic consumer driven model, but the vested interest in, in, in keeping this uh, export model alive, or it's the heavily indebtedness of local governments um, and the, the, the inability of them to take care of some of these problems because of that indebtedness. Uh, there's a, you know, it, it, what I'm describing is it doesn't require all of those things to happen. Any one of those things seem, uh, seems like it would uh, lead to dramatic uh, negative uh, consequences. Uh, so it's, it, it, I think of it this way, um, 
when I was collecting blurbs uh, for uh, As China Goes, So Goes the World, uh, I thought, you know, they ask you, like, who is, who'd be your ultimate blurber? And sometimes you collect these blurbs because you want a, you know, a fig leaf or something. You want somebody to say something uh, so that you're sort of protected from certain types of criticism. Well, through a mutual uh, a friend of mine, I tried to get a member of the Chinese Politburo, who is the governor of uh, one of China's most important provinces, to blurb it. And I even wrote the blurb for him and translated it into Chinese. Well, it's, it's, I'm afraid it's probably more common than you yeah, think yeah. that some people have blurbs. <laughs> would, would you be comfortable if I attributed this to you? So I wrote a blurb that essentially said, next time some, you know, some foreign delegation or somebody, because the book is translated in Chinese, uh, somebody asked me why my job is incredibly difficult, I'm going to hand them a copy of Karl Kurth's book. And that's a, essentially what I'm sort of describing here, is that you have all of these sort of, where is the easy way through all of this? Did he accept, by the way? Did he, did he... Oh. <laughs> what happened? Thank you for having me finish the story. Uh, he wrote back to this mutual friend and said, his personal secretary wrote back and said, are you crazy? <laughs> uh, um, this was on the verge of a decision, a, a decision over who would be a standing member of the Politburo, and he was thought to be in the running for this. Uh, he later, through that personal secretary, wrote back and said he'd be deeply honored to write the preface once he's retired from politics. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, there are two points in there. But, but yeah, the, the primary point, though, was that um, I guess this is what I... We were talking about this before we started filming, uh, about why I like being an historian, is I feel like I can jump around quite a bit, and that jump around quite a bit, there's a possibility of error or mistake in one of these that I haven't analyzed it the way a specialist would, um, a geologist or whatever, but what I like to think that I do is put together all these different pieces that not add up to inescapable conclusion, but maybe allow someone who's just working over here see, oh, this kind of problem could change if that changes over, over there. Likewise, so that's the kind of what spatially complicated, but there's also the temporal, you know, the time right. one by looking at, as you mentioned earlier, that economic nationalism stuff, but why that seems to be such a, a thread, whether it's about manufacturing or now about branding, why that seems to be such a, a persistent um, theme. What all adds up to, as I, I will quote myself in the words of this, uh, of this governor, uh, that I, I wouldn't want to have that job. I think that doesn't mean, oh, we shouldn't criticize and say that China should allow uh, free expression among its artists and evolve towards a more accountable uh, polity. Uh, but it does make me slightly more cautious about saying I've got all the answers when I see these problems as I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be trying to figure out a resolution for those problems, especially when that resolution is, is you know, it's the classic kids that maybe it's the first philosophical question you're asked as a child. If your mom and dad were hanging off a, either ends of a cliff, which one would you go save? I mean, um, well, you know, interesting I, family you grew up in. I, I never, I never no, had that question. Not, that's not common. <laughs> <laughs> that was my mom and dad asking too. No, I'm uh, but, uh, but but the uh, the upshot uh, upshot of that is only later did I le learn to say. Well, when I'm in that situation, I'll worry about it. Right. But I think that this is the kind of solution I feel that some Chinese uh, leaders are entitled to say, well, you know, I, you know I've got incredibly bad options in front of me, especially if we go back to what I believe is the heart of my book. On the one hand, it's building this economy with a well-known developmental path that we see in the West. Um, 
you know, was successful in other East Asian countries, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so on, um, you know, guaranteed uh, raising of standard of living, moving away from that kind of Mao era deprivation, uh, moving toward a society in which people, at least some people, get to feel like they have more uh, control over their life on the one hand with all of those negatives, all the inequality, all the environmental degradation um, on the other. It's pretty, you know, we can all think about how would we choose and I, I, maybe you tell people the same thing I tell my students. If, if, if we worded that correctly, then, then you shouldn't so easily pick just one side. The other day, you know, the students answered a question that was true or false, 90 per, but it was a, an interpretive question, not a factual one. Right. Um, and the majority of them said true. So I said, you can be sure um, on your final exam, you will be forced to argue the false, the why that's right. false. Even if you believe it's true, right. argue it's false. So I would likewise uh, say to you and everyone else that they think about, if they think that the solution is easy and if only China democratized or this, that, the other thing, they might want to look a little bit deeper and, uh, um, at, at their answer or at, at the problem and, and not come to that conclusion too easily, too readily. They can still get, get to that same place. Sure. And there's undoubtedly evidence for that side. Otherwise, so many people wouldn't have voted for that side. But, but I don't think it's as uh, glib or easy as they, they might at first think. It's a very sober, rational, impressive, scholarly response. And I'm going to push you a little bit further. Please do. If I may. <laughs> uh, I'm comfortable making predictions. One of the things I learned well, was uh, that you're never held accountable. Uh, you know, I look at, look, look at certain pol politicians. They can do all kinds of stuff. No, there's no, <laughs> you know, no one's going to come back in 10 years and say, John Stewart actually I thought, follows oh, okay. up a little bit, but not too, yeah. the, not, not too many other but, people. But the, but the targets, what happens to the targets? Yeah. He may, as we say in England, take the piss, yeah. but uh, what's the consequences for that person? Right. Maybe no such thing as bad publicity or something. That's, in any Case, Sadly, yeah, so. that's true. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna make you feel. I, uh, I haven't been able to make you feel uncomfortable yet. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you give you harder questions. Okay. Uh, and and uh, so here's my harder question. Not only what do you think is going to happen, which you fairly successfully managed to evade answering with any degree of precision, and I applaud you for that. Oh, I believe but that I, one of I, those I, ten things that, I, as I mentioned, is going to go horribly wrong, and it's going to create all sorts of oh, that wasn't sorry, a spectrum, ripple effects. wasn't a spectrum <laughs> of possibilities. This no, was, no, this these, was these are ten, ten different distinct um, things that could go wrong, and any one of them would be, I, I hate this cliche, game changer, would, be, would right. make things dramatically different there, and it only takes one of those. You know, if, the, if it turns out there was shoddy construction or there's just a, a natural calamity at uh, the Three River Gorges, God forbid, uh, that would not only kill large, large numbers of people, but it would uh, destroy an important part of the Chinese economy. That's pretty easy to see. You know, how many more hundreds of thousands of people have to die from lung cancer? Um, what are those people going to do as their, uh, as their uh, source of food uh, dries up and disappears? Uh, all of these uh, problems don't seem like a hundred years from now when uh, the sea levels have risen problem. It seems like a ten years out is fair that and there's one so of many of them. There's happen. so many of them statistically. Uh, the, yeah. the likelihood. So, so here's my harder question, and it's a two-parter. So, what do you do now? Not just your fearless prediction or fearful prediction, but what do you what do you do if right now you are in a position of responsibility? You are the president. You are. You, you can be. You, so the two-parter is you can be both presidents. Um, you can be the head of the of the Chinese Communist Party. You can be the you can be the head of the Politburo. You can be the president. You can be the person who is 
who uh, is most accountable and most responsible for setting policy at the highest levels for the country. And you, uh, I, I want to know what you want to do. That's a I fair question because in the conclusion of the last chapter of the book, not the conclusion, the last chapter is all about fire and brimstone. And there wasn't a, here's what we need to do, folks, right. chapter. Fortunately, my editor said, you don't really need to do it. This is more about the problem and the complexity is a problem you don't know about rather than the how do we fix it kind right. of thing. So he left me off the hook. But of course, I had prepared that anyway. Um, I had prepared or at least thought about it. Well, who, who wouldn't? If you read all of that, you, you know, right. if you think that the end is nigh, <laughs> you want to know how you can avoid it if possible. Right. Um, and um, one of the things that was surprising to me, at least on the environmental issues, the really depressing thing is, you know, we're talking about hindsight being 2020, but right. the people at the time knew. A lot of the technologies for uh, for it's the here. environmental stuff has been around for a long time. Geothermal, solar, uh, wind, uh, all of these kind of things have been there. So I guess if it's not a technological question and you just say it's a question of will, um, the really insidious question, which maybe you can ask me, but I'll just pose first, is, and we saw a bit of this at the time of the 2008 Olympics, does it take some scary uh, willing to break eggs to make an omelet uh, kind of government in order to turn on a, you know, turn the aircraft carrier around right. uh, when there are a lot of people who are going to fall overboard to continue the uh, not so good metaphor as the air, aircraft carrier spins around? Um, or, or, or relatedly, how much of a break on your economy are you prepared to to, to have to, uh, if, if you do this. Yeah, well, I guess the, the obvious, the, for me, the obvious kind of solution is, okay, start with the low-lying fruit. What is the low-lying fruit? What energy alternatives in, in, uh, for uh, pollution? I mean, some of these low-lying fruit, unsurprisingly, we see. Uh, so if uh, China was having massive uh, urban pollution from cars and gridlock, uh, then instead of continuing to underfund uh, public transportation in Chinese cities, now you see a massive investment in that. Well, you can say, well, then maybe that's going to help car sales because if you can't drive anywhere, then you're not going to. You know, mm. People aren't going to be buying cars. So maybe it's maybe it's uh, kill two birds with one stone scenario. But I think there are lots of. If you're looking for signs of uh, hope, perhaps there are lots of these sort of examples of. Well, where, where is it politically feasible uh, to do these kinds of things versus, but I think your question is the kind of like, if, if you were, if let's imagine for a moment that China are, China is as totalitarian a state as sometimes cold warriors like to think it is or was, right. uh, you know, what, what sort of edicts would you uh, proclaim? Would you, you know, demand that everybody go back to riding bicycles, uh, for instance? Um, uh, you know, and... I don't, uh, I, do I look uncomfortable yet? Well, I'm, I'm not, not quite, but you're getting there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think implementing those technologies on environmental issues, but you know, the, the problem, the reason why I'm having a difficult time answering is the reason what I was, was suggesting that others do, that you can't answer glibly, A, democracy and freedom sure, and all sure. of that without knowing what the consequences um, of some of the things that you're arguing for. So, right, I, okay, I'll take some of the easy way out. Well, if they had a more transparent form of government, um, then not only would, say, if they had a deregulate, more deregulated uh, market, more efficient use of capital, if they had a more deregulated political system, more efficient use of human brain po power to solve these problems. So uh, if they're listening to the people and they have uh, um, 
their sanction to make these kind of sacrifices, then maybe it's politically more feasible to do so. Maybe if they evolve, evolve toward a more inclusive uh, polity that embraces the positive without the negative, which seems to come in when you open that particular door as well, um, then, then perhaps they'll have a lot more political ground to stand on when it comes to saying, sorry, you're, going to ha you're not going to have this ever um, improving quote-unquote quality of life. I say quote-unquote meaning you have a bigger TV than you had sure. five years ago with more pixels or whatever sure. you measure these things by. Sure. Um, and that, so, you know, th there's a reason why people gravitate towards those democracy and, and you know, free market and all that will solve those problems. I'm, I'm never arguing that, 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 there isn't, that that's not a legitimate answer. Uh, I'm just skeptical that that's the be-all and end-all, that's a panacea that some people uh, think it is that wouldn't have all these other kind of negative consequences. And what about the rising division between the wealthy and the, the rich and the poor? Uh, I mean, you, you point out this is, this is a country of paradoxes. On the one hand, it's the, it's the, it's the creditor nation for the, the, the United States. Yeah, On so the other hand, it's an incredibly poor country, or at least part of, the, there's, there's a widespread poverty through, by our standards, through huge huge tracts of the country and on the, on the other hand there's this enormous wealth being created and, and more to come and and what sort of measures do you think you would take in that position if you were in this magical position of being able to do do things uh, differently? So uh, the the um, the difficult part in your question is when you say me 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 we're not used to being I'm used to throwing rocks uh, <laughs> not being hit by them so if I were to say oh what they might do and kind of hide hide uh, uh, but I think in some ways that's a maybe because then people don't have to look to me to be installed okay. into power, but kind of look like, well, what what are they contemplating? Or what would you so, advise? So, so I, here's a good example of, of 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 an issue that you can go either way on. Uh, State-owned enterprises, the ones that control the commanding heights, the transportation, the energy, uh, the telecoms. Um, all of those, unlike the ones that they sold off that were um, inefficient and unprofitable, these are massively profitable and they're sitting on giant piles of cash. What do you do with that cash? Uh, do you reinstitute some social safety net? Do you help uh, um, uh, move people from uh, some problem, uh, uh, some problem area of the country that's maybe becoming a desert, which they're doing on a small scale, but could do an even massive scale? Do you wean people off of cars or into different types of cars by subsidizing them? That's a huge amount of money. Or do you do what what they seemingly want to do now, which is to make sure that 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 those once those piles of cash is, cash disappear, that they aren't uh, that they're able to replenish them. Mm -hmm. And the thinking behind that is they need to, these companies need to be globally competitive, not just take advantage of their previously protected markets. So uh, there's some thought that they need to continue their push towards uh, becoming more successful as a capitalist uh, country um, in order to eventually fix those problems. So, you know, I guess it comes down to do you want to fix the problem in the short, short term? potentially creating long-term uh, problems, or do you want to continue to sacrifice current generations uh, with the hopes that there'll be the bright socialist slash ca capitalist future down the road at some point? Right. Um, I suppose if they had a more democratic state, they'd do like most democracies do, and like we're doing, at least on climate issues, they'd vote for the, I want it, I'll, yeah. I'll take that now, yeah. um, not deferred gratification. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, 
Have I have I have I successfully evaded once again? You've you've evaded a little, but you've you've uh, you've done your your professorial job, which is to state the problem in very clear and explicit ways. And and I, I'm not looking for so a if I'm not looking for so a if I were solution. to choose between those two things myself, oh, of course, again, uh, on the one hand and the other hand, I would probably be wishy-washy and, and and do do some of both. Yeah. I would you know that's and, and voila, I would have friends. <laughs> I would have some kind of middle middle ground where where you're not. You are, you know, genuinely worried about happiness, which includes being able to breathe the air and, and drink the water. So I guess I would take, I would, I would make sure that those giant companies don't become entities on themselves that have their own interests. That uh, I would make sure that they're properly reined in, and that includes um, making sure that their um, that their wealth generation is being used not only for long-term potential, something wonderful, but something uh, in the here and now. And I guess. You can do those kinds of things. I mean, you hear about these sorts of things. So development projects, if you want to build a development, you also have to build an elementary school. You know, there's right. lots of on-the-ground uh, compromises or pushes that are, are being, um, being made. Right. Uh, Second part of my question. If you were advisor to Barack Obama, or if you were in a, let's just say, if you were advisor to Barack Obama, or if you worked in the secretary, if you were the secretary of state or whatever, if you were somebody who, who who could give very, very concrete recommendations as to how American policy towards China might be different than it is now, what sort of thing would you say, would you recommend? Well, uh, uh, policy, what do you mean by policy? Um, I would put a lot of different things in policy, not just towards a certain country that may be causing trouble, say, you know, Putin or something. Uh, um, I don't want to date this, so you can ax the reference to anything specific. <laughs> I'm sure uh, it'll be that way yeah, for a while. Yeah, yeah, it'll be that way for a while. Say <laughs> that, that he'll be causing trouble somewhere. Um, the, the short answer, though, is, and, I, and this is the conclusion of the book as well, it's you know, set an example. You know, set a better example. If we want the Chinese to create more environmentally sustainable lifestyles so that we don't have to live with the consequences of their pollution, that the way that they have to live with the consequences of our pollution because we've exported all of our pollution over there, uh, and out with all that messy manufacturing, then uh, then we have to, you know, we're already much wealthier than they are. What can, what can we do to ensure, not that we somehow uh, go back to living in caves um, and, you know, cooking by fire or whatever it is, right. but um, f finding some kind of uh, balance. I mean, so you, you uh, mentioned earlier these minimum, you know, fuel efficiency standards. I mean, it's, it's pretty... It seems difficult to accept that the Chinese would have had better ones than we did earlier than we did. We 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 did. Um, there must be endless numbers of examples of that of that um, of that where we could have led uh, rather than let somebody a, a much poorer country do the heavy lifting. And maybe they would have these other benefits as well. We instead of becoming instead of producing or manufacturing increasingly obsolete or inefficient vehicles. You know, we would have the Prius, or the Prius would be from you know, from right. from GM. So, sure. um, yeah. Um, so you can pick any area of life in which, or any area of, of society or the economy in which we could provide other examples. I mean, people point to. Um, Iraq, uh, um, an illegal invasion of Iraq. I mean, Putin himself pointed uh, uh, this as an example of uh, of the sort of hypocrisy. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, 
maybe thinking of where we are providing a better example and foregrounding those. So not just being critical, but saying, what are we, where are we providing good examples? We usually do that in the realm of, you know, individual human rights. We're more than happy to point out how we have better practices uh, than they do, and we do. Uh, but what are the other areas, uh, perhaps areas that will have other kinds of global repercussions, especially environmental ones, where, where we could um, lead rather than hope that the Chinese somehow magically uh, come up with the way of uh, becoming a more um, consumer-driven uh, economy with better lifestyles, but not uh, trashing ours or, 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 or theirs or somebody else's environment. Right. And as you said, as you said, as the conclusion of your book, this notion of using China as, as a foil to some extent uh, for us to, to look at the world in a in a somewhat different way and hopefully ameliorated way, this, this notion of, of making a decision as to whether or not we are going to consume or pursue a policy based upon, well, what would happen if China would do something like that? It, it's, it's a terrific observation. One of the best things about studying uh, China or studying another country is you go in there and it's more of a blank slate for you. You don't have all these preconceived notions. Uh, in a previous job, I had a friend who taught the American South, and this was in the American South, and it was very difficult to teach <laughs> sure. them anything because they all thought they knew everything. Right. It helped right. in his case that he was British guy teaching uh, Southern history, so he could slam. I'm just you know an outsider right. here, but here's the way I see it. Um, so yeah, it's. It's, uh, it helps when you, uh, the, of, of, of looking at China and seeing these problems. But um, as the Russian editor of the, or the editor of the Russian edition of that book told me when she first si uh, signed the contract for it, she said she could do a universal search and replace for most of the book, and a lot of it would apply to Russia. I'm sure the same is true for the, you know, the BRICS, uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India. Uh, South Africa. China, China South Africa, yeah. yeah. Uh, other, uh, and, and other countries are facing exactly this dilemma of how do you have uh, what we think of as uh, sustainable growth. I think that's the ironic, sustainable growth um, of the kind that an environmentalist might think of as sustainable. Yeah. Uh, tricky puzzle. Last question. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a 100-year history of the rise, fall, and reemergence of market culture in China across the 20th and into the 21st century. Wow. So it specifically looks at what happens to capitalism or markets or market culture uh, when the communists take over in 1949. Um, the assumption is uh, that given how quickly it all reappeared, so much of this reappeared after 1978, it must have been there below the surface. So how were market practices or forms of capitalism being reproduced below the surface? So they may not have been visible, especially at the height of Maoist uh, mania, say, sure. in the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward at the end of the 50s. Uh, but I, my suspicion is that it's there somewhere. And I have you know, anecdotal evidence of this through my best informants in China, which are usually the people giving me a massage. Uh, so I was on a beach in Hainan, a beach on Hainan Island, and some very elderly guy was giving me a massage, and he claimed. You know, so I'm usually talking to these people, asking them about life, and you know, because you can strike up a conversation with people from the walk of life that I normally don't encounter. In, in, you know, at the in the upper you echelons don't have, of you don't, you don't have massages yeah. in San Diego or Oxford. Actually, I do, <laughs> and I learn different things from those people. Yeah. So um, I, I, I got to talking to this, you know, seventy-something-year-old man, and he claimed uh, maybe this was his way of bargaining for a better price that he was like the I don't know eighth generation of a uh, of a Chinese massage therapist that wasn't about it was medical massage, uh, and I said to him, well, what about during the you know the Mao right. period? 
what did you do? How could you practice this? Wouldn't this have been seen as problematic in two ways? One, because it was capitalistic if you were running this business, and two, maybe even superstitious, because it wasn't a, you know, based in science. Uh, and he said, no problem, uh, we did all the same stuff, but it was underground. People all knew us, and I was like, well, how did you get paid? Oh, it was a, a thriving barter economy below the surface. So I'll just give that as an example of one of the things that I'm trying to tease out, because the, the question for me, again, is that 70s stuff couldn't have come out of nothing. Right. You know, the 70s or 80s, the, you know, that kind of description of the stuff that I talk about in the book, the sort of China that I saw go from being land of crappy bicycles that you need a good rainstorm to rust together to world's largest consumer and producer of cars, I don't think that could have come out of nothing. Uh, or come out of what we saw, what was very visible to us during the Cold War in China. There must have been these other things uh, going on. So I'm going to try to um, tease that try out. To tease that, out. Yeah. that said, As China Goes, So Goes the World was originally going to be 40 pages in the last chapter of this book. Be careful. And uh, that's a typical <laughs> academic problem was that it ended up you know, taking on a life, of its, a life of its own. Well, problem is one way to look at it, obviously. Uh, experience, opportunity, I'm sure there are all sorts of positive benefits of it. Well. I, have, I have no regrets whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's fun to, I mean, it's again, the advantage of being a historian. In my first book, um, I, it was about economic nationalism in the early 20th century, and I looked at the ways in which China were, or Chinese, for economic, excuse me, for, um, for nationalistic reasons were expected to change the way they appeared, and that include uh, cutting their hairs, their cues, you know, those long braids that they right, would have, right. shaved forehead and braid, which was a distinguishing characteristic of men of the, of the Qing dynasty. And um, I, I was reading everything I could about why they were so reluctant to cut their cues, and how it was tied to masculinity, and how it was mm. tied to class, because of course, uh, maintaining, uh, maintaining a well-oiled, long, clean queue was very expensive and time-consuming, right. so it had something to do with class as well. And uh, you know, before I knew it, I had 50 pages and was working towards a book just on hair. You know, men's hair in China in the late 19th, early 20th century. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a dangerous profession for people who are easily uh, sidetracked. Yeah. Carl, anything we haven't talked about? Anything you wanted to add that uh, I'm I've sure there are endless things we haven't uh, <laughs> talked about. Sorry, that's the way Any, it be. anything we should have talked about uh, uh, in your view that, that uh, we didn't get a chance to touch. Not on. that I can think of. I try to. I, I'm always conscious when I when I when I spe finish speaking about these things that I've sort of, that there's a lot of doom and gloom and not you know sunny optimism. And when I was uh, doing the business circuit with this uh, with this book, uh, business people like to think about these kind of interconnections. Um, I, I was told by my publisher, she goes, well, you got to have a kind of more upbeat ending. I was like, well, maybe the afflorescence of the Chinese consumer and consumer economy will lead to untold numbers of wonderful things. I mean, there'll be all sorts of electronic gizmos and brands and ca electric cars and other things that could be, at least in the short term, a very positive outcome. So. Maybe. But Does that sound like a positive spin on an otherwise grim well, uh, conversation? Well, first of all, I'm not mandating that you necessarily say anything positive or negative. Uh, so uh, I think the positive is always there. Like absolutely. I say, it just feels easier uh, and less responsible to, to point to the positive things. Again, as I do in that book, I mean, uh, you know, the original, the original first sentence, which is too vulgar for me to say it literally here, or you can bleep, uh, bleep it out, was, I like to shit indoors as much as the next 
person. Yeah. This was my way of saying, it was acknowledging that I, I don't begrudge the Chinese for wanting all these wonderful things, but I felt like I kind of, I, you know, kind of needed to do that because I don't want to say that, that all of these kind of changes and all the hard work and sacrifice that went into China transforming itself so tremendously over these decades should be, should be acknowledged almost first. But I guess I sort of imagine that that, that almost goes without saying that these accomplishments are are so impressive that it's just it's just the kind of like at what cost thing that's worth worth contemplating the other side of the story. Well, maybe my conversations are generally much grimmer than yours, but I didn't yeah. find this one to be a particularly okay. depressing or grim conversation. The, the only time and it was teetering in that direction was when you did the whole you have to choose between your parents, and I had this. this, this <laughs> you, you really weren't asked that question I as was, a child. I was, I was never I asked. I remember that. struggling with that one. Well, we're, we're, we're kinder and gentler. Sorry, in Canada, Dad. No, see. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Carl, thank you very much. It was a pleasure My talking pleasure. to you, yeah. and, uh, and best of luck with uh, all your upcoming projects. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 3, along with separate discussions with David Armitage, Jennifer Michael Hecht, Margaret McMillan, and Matthew Stewart. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.